Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to GTP Keeper Radio. It is Sunday, January 31st, 2016, 9 o'clock here on the East Coast. Um, I am in studio with Tim Marsh. We're still waiting for Bill to join us. So as soon as Bill gets here, we will bring him on. And um, we'll uh, get the interview going. But before we start, I just wanted to... uh, do a few little housekeeping announcements. And the first thing is that, um, you know, we just endured a record-setting snowstorm here on the East Coast. I hope everyone fared well and um, and was prepared for the, uh, for the snowstorm. I am always worried that I'm going to lose power. So we were – the Buscemi Emergency Management System was in place. Um, and we did, fortunately we didn't have to use it, so we were ready to go. And um, I know that people elsewhere on the East Coast were, were kind of taking it day by day, but it sounds like everyone did well, and they pulled through the storm. And the other thing that I want to briefly touch on is that uh, apparently it looks like it's going to be a pretty good season for Condros. I've been seeing a lot of... Uh, pairings that are taking place right now, a lot of people posting photos of their breeding projects, and a lot of eggs are in the incubator. So it looks like it could be a pretty good year for U.S. captive born and bred condors, which is a good thing. Um, And hopefully we are able to bring more people into the hobby and introduce them to these great animals. And, um, you know, that just works out well for us. Bill, how are you doing? Hey, buddy. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Um, hey, yeah. Thanks for joining us. I'm well. <laughs> Skype, uh, Malcolm. Glad you could make Skype. it. I just got, yeah, thanks. You know, I'm usually uh, Johnny on the spot. Don't like to be late, but uh, Skype malfunction kept me uh, disconnecting me, so I'm on the old-fashioned cell phone. Good. Good deal. Um, yeah, We've I'm actually getting. Hold on, Bill. Right? I, I've got some feedback. Yep, I've got some feedback here. I've got to take care of. Okay, there we no go. Worries. Okay. Good. We are good. Mm-hmm. I have Tim Morris on. You need a radio check. Radio check. <laughs> Loud and clear, Bill. All right. So, so what's what's going on down in Texas, my friend? Well, in the midst of your uh, winter perils, it was 76 degrees here today. I know that that sounds great, but it is awful hard to breed chondros when it's 76 degrees on the last day of January. So they're just not happy with that temperature? They don't seem to be. I mean, they just, uh, 
they're they're basking, you know, they're they're basking in the warmth and uh they're not cuddling in the cold. So uh, you know, I know we were gonna talk about some of our uh some of our pairings like we usually do and, and don't don't get me wrong, I'm happy to have seventy six degrees here uh in the winter, but um man, I think you guys have an advantage out there on the east coast. That's why it's the Condor hotbed out there, you guys just uh you know, it's winter in your winter time, and it's summer in your summertime. That that could be. That could be. So, uh, what what is going on down there? What are you excited about pairing wise? I know you have some chondro pairings, and you're also doing some carpondro stuff. Yeah, don't let Tim hear. You better whisper that with Tim on, or he may decide to may may decide not to do the show. <laughs> so we'll just, okay, we'll just keep that keep that, uh, you know, kind of on the down low. But, uh, yeah, probably my most uh, exciting pairing is uh, a Blue Deuce female that I got from Christian uh, maybe three years ago. Um, she's a, a beautiful uh, animal. She's uh, from Blue Deuce times um, Speedy's uh, Wamina female. She's a great, she's a smaller male, but she's five years old, and I've, I've bred her to a, a nice blue animal from um, Jason Stevens' Bainin. Uh, bred to a blue Arfac uh, female that's owned by Ryan Burke. And uh, she has ovulated, and she's in her post-ovulation shed right now. So I, I hope uh, and would be very blessed to get a nice small clutch from her. And uh, I'm, und- I'm doing the repeat pairing from last year. Uh, that was uh, Jager that Marshall Mendez produced, um, bred to a, a woman at locality-type female and uh, that was the female that laid the 20 red babies and three yellow blaze animals that I believe you s- still have one of those. I do. I still have him it, or her here. It's doing well? It's doing very well. It. Uh, my my uh, oldest son, he knows when that tub comes open to stand back. That that snake just that wants right? to come out and eat everything in sight. Yes, absolutely, doing really well. Still hasn't right. went through any color right. change though. It's still uh, still bright yellow with a nice blaze pattern, and um, curious to see how it turns out when the uh, you know what it looks like when it becomes an adult. I'm sure it's going to be a great looking animal. I hope so. It's you know the the patch date on that was April first, so we're coming up not too far from its first birthday. Okay, good. Fantastic. So, yep. And then, uh, and then the other pairing that I have, uh, this is the one I need. I'm going to whisper. It's um, it's the 75% green tree carpondra that was produced uh, by Speedy, and I've got that guy. It's a male. He's an eight-year-old male, and I've got him uh, breeding a female biak. It had uh, multiple lockups, and she's off feed, which is very unusual for her. She's a, an eating machine. So she's off feed, haven't seen her ovulate, but she's uh, looks like developing some follicles. She's swelling a little bit and has been on the heat more. Um, and if that indeed pans out and we're able to get a viable animal from her, that would be the, the first 88% green tree carpondros I, I believe ever produced. But somebody may be able to correct me on that. So uh, those are really the three um, chondro carpondro projects I'm excited about. Very cool, very very cool. Now you're, you're be way interesting ahead of to see that. Yeah, just a little bit. I've, I do have some eggs in the incubator, and I've got another female. I'm hoping, you know, she's 
she should lay her within the next week, and and then uh, that that may be it for my season. So, but that's enough. You know, I'm always yeah, one clutch is always enough for me. So yeah, that, that, yeah. That, I learned that lesson. I learned that lesson, or I say we learned that lesson painfully uh, last year <laughs> when I had one clutch, but it was a it was a big one, and it was more than more than I could have handled. More than I could handle. Right, that happens, but you'll be able to do it this year, no doubt. We'll see, with with some help from my friends. There you go. Yep, no problem. Um, how many, so eggs, if you how many are, eggs did your girl lay? Uh, she laid 11, and okay. Bill already okay. knows this, but um, egg number 11 I managed to fumble and drop. <laughs> so... I told Bill it would probably go bad within a day or two, and sure enough, it did. So I'm down to ten nice little chondro eggs. Um, so that's what happens when you check your egg box first thing in the morning, and you haven't had breakfast, but you've decided to suck down a couple cups of coffee and then pull the female out of that egg box and kindle your eggs. And you know, I guess I could sit down over a table and do it, but I guess. I don't know. Maybe I like to live dangerously a little bit and stand up and hold them over a concrete floor and candle them. So that's what I did, and I, I fumbled it, and down it went. So that's pretty much your mo, buddy. Living on the dangerous side, the wild side. Yeah, I feel you, man. Yes, that's, that's you. my mo. Danger <laughs> is my middle name, um, and uh, so that's pretty much it. You know, those those guys have been in the incubator for uh, maybe a week or so now, and. They're all looking pretty good. You know, it's always one of those things. You put some eggs in the incubator, and, you know, I try not to think about them too much because, you know, you like I like to stare at them at least, and it seems like I'm going down checking out the incubator, you know, five or six times a day, if not more, just to go look to make sure that nothing has changed since the past, you know, since the last 30 minutes since I was down there the last time. But <laughs> such is the it's nature, okay. I guess, okay. of... Uh, that's okay. Okay, good. Good. No, it's okay to be vigilant. You know, that's okay. You have um, you have somebody you need to thank for stepping in to last month's show. Well, I guess maybe he's not going to say thank you. Have we lost you, buddy? Are we continuing to have I'm technical there. difficulties? I'm, I'm there, Bill. Can you hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me, Bill? Okay, good. Sorry about that. Yes. Um, I, no I clicked the mute button. I think oh, because I okay. said I, I referenced my wife, the mute button automatically comes on. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, yes. <laughs> Don't get yourself in trouble. last show, I was not able to attend, um, and I was in a bit of a panic because I felt completely overwhelmed with, and preparing for my uh, my nursing boards, and you know, I asked uh, Bill if maybe we could have somebody step in and, and fill my shoes. And we uh, went over and we talked to our parent uh, radio show, Morelia Python Radios, and we asked and begged Eric and Owen if they could help us out, and they were very gracious and. Eric came on and filled in for me. So thank you, Eric. I really appreciate you helping me out. Hopefully I can do something for you, a similar favor for you in the future if you ever need it. And um, also we had we had the Dr. Brad 
McLaughlin. And that was a great show, by the way. And, um, you know, Brad's a great guest, and, you know, he, he made the show very worthwhile. And uh, thanks, Brad, for taking time out of your busy schedule to come on and spend a few hours with us on a Sunday evening talking did, about what it's you, like being a vet and keeping chondros. Did you get a chance to listen to the show? I did. Yeah, I, well, I, 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 I downloaded it that night, and the next morning I had to go in early for uh, I was I had uh, some stuff in the OR that I was doing, and so I had to, uh, as Bill, you know, you have to get up really early for OR stuff. So I was up really early, and you know, was able to drive in and just really listen to as much of the interview as possible. And then on the way home, I finished it up. So it was a great show. Great, yeah, I agree. I think they both did a really really good job. In fact, they did such a good job, uh, Eric and Owen decided to pretty much copy our idea, and they had Dr. Waffa on their show, I think it was last Tuesday. So I'm, I'm yeah. sure it wasn't as good as our show, but uh, they did indeed have him on. <laughs> well, Brad told me. He said, you know, oh, he you did. know his heart belongs to DTP Keeper Radio, and you know, it'll be, he said he would he would really provide them with some great content, but you know, he always keeps the best for us. <laughs> that's our that's our man right there. Okay, yep, I know we yep. want to get we've already we've already tittled eleven or twelve minutes off of the show. I know we want to get Tim on, and I want you to introduce him. Um, but I know we always want to um, at the beginning or the end of the show. We want to one of the missions of of our show has always been to promote, um, especially for new keepers, the purchasing of what we call the right pondro. And, uh, you know, the ability to choose a quality first chondro from a quality breeder will most likely make or break your first chondro um, experience, which we think is so important. So I just wanted to give a prop out there for some of the good places to go for people to get uh, to, to get a green tree python. Those, of course, would include, uh, first and foremost, the NVF classifieds. Uh, there's an NVF Facebook page. There's other Facebook pages available, uh, like the U.S. Captive Bread Congo Classified Ads, uh, and then the Facebook group that's titled Green Tree Pythons Sale, Trade, and Chat. So if you're not familiar with those resources, um, I encourage anybody that's listening to the show to uh, to check those out, especially if they're looking for a new Congo. Good deal. Good deal. Hey, Bill, but before we bring Tim on, isn't something happening at your place? Uh, yes, thank you for reminding me. We are actually going to have on April 30th have the second annual Southern Carpet Fest uh, down here. I'll be hosting it. Uh, I hosted the first annual Southern Carpet Fest um, last year, and it was a big success. <laughs> Got a lot of people. We had uh, Eric Burke that, uh, came in from the East Coast from Philly, and we had a lot of people um uh, that were locally and even uh, out of state that came in for that, and it was a fantastic get together. It's it's not show related. It is typically ju- everybody just gets together, and um, we call it Carpet Fest, but it could really be called just Snake Fest because there were <laughs> carpet people there, there were chondro people there, ball python people there, uh, everything uh, in between. So it was a great. It was a great show. Um, Matt Morris was not able to attend, and he was very disappointed that he wasn't able to attend because of a prior uh, commitment. So he is going to be instrumental uh, with myself and 
uh, Evan Broder and uh, a couple of other uh, local people here on uh, putting this show on. It's going to be at my place. Matt's going to come up from Austin. Um, I've already got a verbal commitment from Eric. He's going to drag Owen down. I've been contacted by people on the West Coast that are going to come. So I think it's going to be a really, really big, uh, great show if you're into carpet pythons or chondros or ball pythons or anything and everything between. Um, and you're available on April 30th. I would invite you guys to uh, contact me on Facebook or Evan Broder or Matt Morris and uh, get the details, and we'd, uh, we'd love to see you guys. Sounds like a fun time. Carpet Fest is uh, a very good time, and if you've never been, you should at least attend one. You will uh, walk away amazed at not only the animals that tend to be at these gatherings, but the people that are there as well. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, Carpet Fest, as you know, is just a offspring of, I guess, original Condro Fest. I mean, you you guys started it uh, right many years ago. Yeah, you can. Yep. If you uh, pull out the lineage tree for Carpet Fest, you will find that it directly <laughs> relates back to Condro Fest and directly relates back to and, Tipper Wash. So, yes, that that is true. Right. Including some wild-caught uh, outcrosses. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, we have. Yes, that is true. Uh, Tim is actually might be able to share some interesting carpet fest or condor fest stories. Um, but then again, he may not want yes. to. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we'll we'll, um, gouge, we'll gouge him out of him. Gotcha, gotcha. So let's uh, let me introduce my uh, friend Tim Morris. Um, for those of you who don't know, I am an avid cyclist, and I've been keeping different reptiles throughout my life, like most of us. And um, in the 90, very early 90s, I was introduced to Tim from another fellow cyclist who said, hey, I know this other guy who's in the snakes, and you should meet him. Um, and uh, Tim and I met, and we <coughs> rode a few times. And then um, Tim had a party at that believe in an apartment at the time he was living in and and I got invited and we went over to watch uh, I think a mountain bike race on TV um, and so I walked in and I remember walking in and I believe the room was on the left there was a room and it was glowing red and I knew like oh this guy is, doesn't just have a snake he's got a snake collection um, nice. and we went in and Tim showed me around and lo and behold he had chondros and um you know, so that, so we had two things in common, and our friendship grew from there. And uh, Tim was the first person to introduce me to captive bred chondros. Um, he was the first person to say, "Yeah, here, hold this snake." Um, I was amazed, uh, but frightened at the same time because I knew I wanted them, but I was uh, a little afraid to keep them. Tim can probably talk about that a little bit later. And one of that I was involved with with Tim was that when Tim actually catching him, I actually had a chance to see Tim to making a baby chondro go and be ready to go to a new home. So it was uh, quite an experience to see and experience. Um, and Tim and I piled around to a couple of reptile shows together. We've ended some shows together, and you know we did a couple of little breeding projects together later. We're actually at the same time with some other 
python species and um when i got into condors you know tim was the guy i called and said hey i'm thinking about condors and then when i had uh gravid female i wanted to know what the deal was about going no substrate because i'd never done that before and tim you know, gave me all the advice and direction so um and we did a couple other fun things too tim used, tim is a teacher and he had a uh a pretty active uh reptile club at his school that he was a, a teacher at at one point and uh, I, I got to go down there one time and bring in some of the animals that uh they hadn't already been introduced to and get to hang out with Tim and show the kids some neat animals and see the reactions and all that kind of stuff. So without further ado, Tim Morris, welcome to GTP Keeper Radio. Hello, guys. Hey, Tim. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, Tim. Nice introduction. Tim, um, it's, it's really good to talk to you, Tim. I don't think we probably haven't spoken since ICAST. Um, and mm. so it's when, when Buddy said that uh, he had coerced you into being a guest on the show, I was uh, obviously very excited. I really look forward to spending some more time uh, talking with you tonight, and I just wanted to thank you for taking a couple hours out of your schedule uh, and joining us tonight to talk Congress. Yeah, not a problem. Hey, Tim, one of the things we uh, kind of do, I, I think a lot of people that are listening to the show tonight probably – know you and know your background from maybe the people that, that don't, if you could uh, just give us a little bit about, um, you know, yourself personally, about you know, how you got into reptiles, condos specifically, um, you know, when approximately did you start keeping them and uh, kind of just your, your, your history, because it's a, it's a fascinating one. So maybe you could, could spend a couple minutes talking about that. Yeah, sure. I, I, like many of us probably I have always been, you know, fascinated by reptiles. I mean, I can think all the way back to uh middle school when I was um roaming around the woods, you know, trying to find whatever we could. Preferably snakes were the thing that really piqued my interest, but as you know, if you've ever been out in the field, usually you get good at searching for other things because snakes, you know, don't always come around when you want them to. Um so you know, Turtles and salamanders and other things that were a little more common that you'd see other than snakes. Um, so that led to, of course, you know, wanting to keep some snakes, and it took a long time to get my parents to kind of buy into that one. Um, I guess when I was <laughs> around 20 or so, um, this is really funny, actually, now that I think about it. Way, way back when, my very first sort of official snake, after several hits and misses at, you know, uh, several different uh, snakes purchased at, you know, pet stores, which back then they were always, you know, wild caught and never did well in captivity. Um, The first captive born snake I ever owned was a Burmese python that I got from uh, Larry Kenton, who I didn't know at the time, and he didn't have quite everything going on at the time. He was a breeder of sorts and um, were involved with... um, promoting concerts, and that's what he was into mainly, you know, back then. So he had a Burmese python, I think, you know, I sold that, and then years down the road, lo and behold, through Larry Kenton again, I wanted another Burmese python. They were probably the most popular and common, I guess, kept snakes at that point. And 
he didn't have any uh, Burmese pythons, so he switched me over to a retic, and I wasn't really crazy about it because it was pretty nasty <laughs> as they tend to be. So I called him back. I remember about a month later and said, "Hey, Larry, look, this thing's really not working out. I mean, I've got leather gloves. I've handled this thing every day, and it's just tearing me apart." So he took it back and got another, you know, Burmese python, and I had that for many, many years. Um, you know, fast forwarding a few years and, you know, a couple other miscellaneous snakes here and there, um, I guess it was around the early nineties when, you know, the snake bug really hit me back again. And, you know, there's this really cool pet store that was somewhat local called just winging it. And it was down in this place called Glen Burnie, Maryland. They had probably the most, you know, variety of, of different herps that, um, any place that I'd ever seen. And, of course, they did hand-raised birds and everything else. And when I went in there, my eyes just lit up. I mean, I just saw things that, you know, you never, I never saw in person, first of all. Um, second of all, just things that you didn't see uh, usually, you know, offer for sale. Anyway, from there, I took a boat and started the, which what's was the time kind of, frame? What's the time frame here, Tim? I mean, what year are you talking about approximately? This was probably about 1991. 1990, okay. 1991. So I got this um, and raised that up, and I had that for a couple of years. And I guess it was around 92, yeah, probably somewhere in there, probably 93, I guess. There was a, you know, as I started searching out for more and different things, you know, you get, you know, literature back then was very limited. I mean, there were very few books and all the books really that were out there were all the same thing. I mean, it was all how to keep, you know, reptiles. I think Scott Madison was one of the popular authors back at the time. And, you know, but mainly there were the same sort of, you know, repetitious type of, you know, snake books. And then I caught wind of a place, and I don't even remember where, because this was even before the Internet, um, this place in California where they had a catalog, and I guess maybe it was in a reptile magazine. I guess back then I was getting like the Vivarium and uh, Reptile and Amphibia magazine were, were big back then, and um, I found out about them, and I don't remember how, but in the back they had very good advertising classified sections, and in there was this place that sold, you know, herpetology stuff that were located in California, and anyway, they had a, you know, sent me a price list, and in that price list was the uh, Ross and Marzak uh, Reproductive Husbandry of Bows and Pythons. And I saw that book, and I was like, wow, you know, this is something that's really different than anything else that's out there. So I ordered it, and it was quite an expensive book back then. And, you know, when I got it, I mean, it just had, you know, all this information on breeding bows and pythons. I mean, stuff that I've only even heard about, let alone not even seen pictures of them, you know, up until that time. Uh, one of the things I noticed in that book, and this is kind of leading into the chondro bug, where I kept seeing the few photographs that were taken by this guy named Trooper Walsh, National Zoological Park. And I started thinking, I was like, wow, that's just right down in D.C. So, right. Yeah, so there was, you know, some time that went by. And I guess in the meantime, you know, through subsequent visits to, um, you know, this, this pet store, um you know, I got, you know, an interest in some other things. So I picked up an emerald tree boa that they had. It was a wild card. It was a male. It was actually very friendly. And then my nephew, wow. Sean uh, Stewart, 
um, we got into, you know, one our very first breeding project, so to speak, was the Emerald Tree Bow, and he wound up scoring a female from some guy off of some ad, I guess, in one of the you know, magazines at the time. So our collection, my collection at that point, really was, you know, this male emerald tree bow and this boa constrictor. Um, and then through the Ross and Marzak book, one of the other um, animals that really caught my attention was the uh, Brazilian rainbow boa. And so I went back to just winging it. There was a guy named uh, Bob there and Kevin. I asked, uh, I think it was Kevin was in charge of the herp department there. And I said, look, I want, you know, one of these Brazilian rainbow bows, you know, where I can find one. And he went to talk to Bob, the store owner, and he was like, hey, you know, I could probably get one of those for you. So I told him to go ahead and order it. He said it was, I think it was, they were like 400 bucks back then, you know, back then. Yeah, so, a fortune. Yeah, that was quite a bit of money, right? And so yeah. well, I, um, you know, it was going to take him a few days to get it in. He told me the day it was going to be in. And, of course, I just went down there and, and on the day that he told me it would be there, and it wasn't. And um, so I told him, I said, well, when do you think this is going to come in? And he goes, well, let me call the guy. So he calls this guy on the phone, and, you know, and they're talking about trying to make arrangements. And I said, well, where's the snake located? He goes, it's in Maryland. I said, really? I said, well, can I go pick it up? And he's like, no, it's from one of the breeders. Because I, I think he didn't want me to kind of see sort of the uh, – markup, you know, from wholesale to retail. (laughs) And so, you know, I told him, I said, look, I don't care. You know, you can take the 400 bucks. I'll pay you whatever. Let me just go pick it up. So he talked to the breeder, happened to be Peter Call. And, um, yeah, so that's how I kind of hooked up with him. So um, Pete at the time said, sure, you can come on up here. So I went up there and I saw for the first time, you know, a large-scale breeding operation, and my jaw just about dropped to the floor. Uh, so anyway, I got the rainbow bow, I got it home, and then still going through the Ross and Marzak book, of course, the, actually a couple of the pictures there for the Brazilian rainbows were also uh, taken by, you know, Trooper Walsh, who had a collection of them, breeding collection, you know, down at the zoo. So anyway, of course, the green tree pythons were in there as well, and the first thing that really caught my attention there were these yellow, bright yellow, neon yellow babies. So I really wanted one of these things and had no idea where to get them. I mean, they weren't showing up in any of the the ads at the time in the back of the magazines that I was getting. So, uh, you know, my, my nephew Sean and I both, you know, kind of had the bug simultaneously. So we concocted this idea to go down to the zoo, figuring, you know, we'll just mosey around the reptile house and see if we can bump into this guy named Trooper. So, you know, I've told this story I know a number of times, but it's kind of funny. So we go down there one day and we go down to the reptile house, which is a big sort of oval. The inside kind of laid out like a big oval. And it's all, you know, indoors, most of it. So we go in there and we probably make about 20 laps around. And every now and again, we would see somebody come out of some door, uh, some access door, you know, with the khakis and khaki shorts, almost looking like Crocodile Hunter, um, which at the time hadn't happened yet. But anyways, um, a couple of these people we saw, one was a girl, another was another guy, but, you know, they had the name tag or whatever. So we're down on the far end where the uh, big crocodilians are, and this one guy comes out of this one door, walks across behind us and into another door, 
And I'm looking at this guy, and I could have sworn I saw his name badge said Trooper. So Sean and I are looking at each other. It's kind of like a comedy show. And I said, Sean, I said, you know, that was Trooper Walsh. He goes, how do you know? I said, I could see it on his name badge. He goes, really? I'm like, yeah, he went into that door. I said, don't knock on it. He goes, no, you knock on it. I'm like, no, I'm not knocking on it. So here we are. We all get down there. We see this guy we want to meet. And neither of us have the, you know, the uh, guts to go knock on the door. So finally, I, I can't remember whether it was Sean or me, but one of us, you know, knocks on the door and almost like, you know, lurch from the monsters, you know, this door slowly opens and this head peers through. <laughs> he kind of looks at both of us like, can I help you? <laughs> and I, I don't, you know, remember specific words that were spoken at that time, but I know it's something like, hey, you're Trooper Walsh, right? And he said something to the effect of, yeah, and I, and I think from there I kind of went on to, you know, you know, I saw your pictures in, you know, the Ross and Marzak book. You know, I'm very interested in, you know, some of the animals you work with. And out, you know, and out of nowhere, the door opened up wider, and he actually led us in behind the line that he cared for. And so from there, that kind of established our relationship with him a little bit. Um, and then through that, later that summer, this probably happened, I guess, in the spring of 93. Then the summer of 93, um, I was in college, and so I was out of college, and I um, wanted to go volunteer down there. Well, at the time, Sean had been volunteering a lot down at the National Aquarium in Baltimore, and he found out through the grapevine down there that National Zoo also takes volunteers. So, um, you know, I went down there and put in an application to volunteer at the uh, reptile, you know, in the herpetology department down there, and they went ahead and took me in, which I was thrilled with. I was like, this is great. Now I'll get to talk to this guy Trooper more and find out more about these green tree pythons and um really funny because, you know, Tripper's kind of a unique kind of guy for those people that know him, certainly understand what I mean by that. Uh, he's got a heart of gold, but he's, he's a hard guy to get to sort of the inner circle of trust. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. a little rough know, on there the were some day, Yeah, there were some days, you know, he was very gracious and talkative, and other days he would walk right past you and not say a word. But I remember, you know, um, you know, this time we were also, my nephew, Sean and I were volunteering up at Pete's, too. We we, we talked Pete into because he was overwhelmed with all the snakes he had, you know, to go volunteer up there. So we were doing, you know, these double volunteer positions, you know, at these two different places. And I remember Pete was talking up this Breeders Expo, which at the time was down in, you know, Orlando before it moved to Daytona. And he said, that's the place to go if you want, you know, want to get some, you know, snakes. And um, so anyways, I was talking to Trooper, and I was asking him if he had any green trees for sale, and he looked at me, he goes, nope, don't have any. And I said, well, you know, are you going down to this reptile expo? He goes, yep. And um, and he goes on to tell me he just doesn't sell his snakes to anybody, and, you know, he doesn't have any more available for this year. And lo and behold, we make the trip down there in August of 93, and he's down there with Eugene Bissett. Um, They kind of had a business together called Ophiological Services, and um, there were loads of condors down there. <laughs> so I remember when I was down there, first thing I did is I went up to their table and I looked at Trooper. I'm like, so you don't have any more left for sale is what I'm hearing, but I'm seeing something quite different. And he kind of just gives me this little grin, you know, like, you know, didn't really. I don't even think he ever said anything about it. He just gave me this grin, and <laughs> life went on. 
So I told him I wanted to buy a snake, and I originally wanted a yellow snake, and he looked at me and said, no, nah, you really want a maroon or a red snake. And I said, but I like that right, you know, bright neon yellow. And he said, no, nah, you want a maroon. And so anyway, so I picked up this one maroon snake, and the going price, the standard price then, then was $750 for a baby. Okay. Um, and that Tim, was that yellow or red? I mean, you could you could kind of take your pick. Yeah, I think it was pretty much either one, if I remember. If anything, it was like maybe six fifty for yellows and seven fifty for maroons. But I'm not a hundred percent sure. It might have just been, you know, seven fifty for all of them. You know. Um, okay. But the price did go up a little bit, as you'll as you'll find out, because we buy this one animal from them, or we're got, about to buy this one animal. And my wife at the time is looking at the snake, and she's like, you know, that snake's really small. And Trooper's like, I'm glad you noticed that. How about this baby? So this was a baby from hatch earlier in the year, from January, where the one we were looking for, I think, was, or looking at was a um, March or April, you know, baby. Maybe even May, I'm not sure. Anyway, so he pulls out this bigger maroon animal. And he said, you really want this one because I know you guys are driving back and you really want an animal that's going to survive the trip. And, of course, right. this animal wasn't 750 It was actually 950 right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, he, he sold us on that point. So we went ahead and bought that animal. Now, this animal was um, 1393 which was actually turned out to be a litter mate to the legend male, which we eventually acquired at the same show. And what happened was the next day um, on Sunday, we went back to the table. And of course I hung out there in my, you know, salivating over all the things they had. And so through a different um, sort of conversation, you know, he looks at me and he said, you know, I got something special for you. And I was like, wow, what could that be? And here's a guy who tells me he has nothing for sale, and all of a sudden he's got everything for sale. Now he wants to sell me something else. So, <laughs> something special. Yeah, so his thing at the time, his transport thing at the time, were these crystal light containers. They were like these little, you know, round, sort of tall, maybe two inches in diameter, sort of tube type things for this crystal light drink mix or whatever. Anyway, he, I guess he drank a lot of that, but he used them to transport the condors down the show. So he pulls out this crystal light container. And he opens it up and he pours out this little tiny little snake. And I'm like looking at it like, why is he showing me another snake? I've got no more money, you know. And I think he knows that because yeah. he spent, you know, 200 more dollars on this snake that, you know, we only budgeted 750 for. So he said, you know, I'm going to give you this little snake. He goes, I don't think it's going to amount to much. He was a, you know, egg mate, you know, a twin and his egg mate died. Um, he said, but, you know, you've done a lot of nice things for us at the zoo, and this is, you know, a way of saying thanks. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. And he goes, and I know you're going to give it a good home. So that snake actually, that little midget twin that he didn't think would amount to much turned out to be, you know, the, the animal became known as the legend male. And so that was kind of cool, you know. I mean, um, you know, I remember – measuring out the sheds, taking them back there. And even the next year I volunteered down there, I think three, three different summers. And I would always take 
you know, measure out sheds and give them updates on how how these things are growing. So that's kind of where everything started. So that was my first pair. Now, after I think it was about a year, it was about a year later. Actually, I got in the car somewhere, but I think it was about a year later when these things started really growing up, and I learned more about them and about the prospects of possibly breeding these guys. You know, I went back to Trooper and I said, you know, Troop, I said, you know, I, I know you sold us this big maroon animal and we paid a lot for it. I said, but I know this one is a litter mate to the one you gave me. And I said, you know, I want to breed these things someday and I, I would prefer not to breed, you know, siblings together. So I said, how would you feel about or would you have any females that you would, because at that point we had sexed them and, you know, had a pair, um, yeah, I asked him, I said, well, do you have a, you know, an animal that you'd be willing to you know, trade for this girl? And at first he kind of, you know, stuttered a little bit. I'm, you know, I'm sure he kind of wasn't anticipating that question. So make a longer story short, he decided he would go ahead and trade it out for me. And that's how I ended up with the Sid, the Powder, and Joan Collins, the 4893, you know, uh, Tim Morris Blue Female. Um, I actually traded, you know, the the one that we bought down at the show um, back for um, that female. So, Tim, do you do, that, do you did you keep up with that original animal that you traded back? Did you do you know whatever became of it? Yeah, you know, I was actually just talking to John Holland about that today because I was actually looking over the questions you guys were going to ask. I had a few Mr. Blue related questions for him clarifications but um you know that animal i remember did very well for me i mean she was literally a garbage can i mean anything extra i had rodent wise she would just scarf it down and i remember when trooper got it he emailed me or called me a couple times and said you know i'm no doubt this animal's healthy i mean she's big and full and vibrant but i can't get her to feed so he couldn't get her to and I'm thinking to myself, wow, you're like the legend, man. You can't get this thing going. Huh? <laughs> so after a while, you know, it, it kicked in and started feeding, you know, so that was one thing. So he did get her going, and he eventually bred her. Now, I can't remember how many years later this conversation took place, but I was talking to John, and I knew this conversation predated the albino stuff, um, you know, all the albino stuff. Because he had in a conversation he told me he'd gotten a litter of eggs out of her and in that litter was a stillborn animal that was vastly different looking than any other animal and he kind of referred to it as kind of like an albino like and we didn't think any i mean i know personally i didn't maybe he thought more about it because obviously he was more versed in history of the animals and everything like that but like i said up until this point there was no albino history of any sort and um, I just kind of, like, dismissed it as some sort of freak of incubation. You know, something just happened. Um, but later turned out, that animal being a sib to the legend, it turned out that that litter, the calico litter, um, there were some hets possibly in there carrying the albino gene. Uh, so um, that gotcha, female gotcha. could have been, yeah, she could have been a het. So, you know, again, there's no pictures of that or anything like that and. You know, I don't, you know, I guess I could ask him about it to see, but I'm pretty certain that he now believes that that was, you know, an albino. 
That's incredible. So, wow. So you ended up with that little runt that Trooper gave you. Yeah. And then, and then the female that you got was forty-eight ninety-three. Yeah, but that was the one I traded for. The original one was traded ninety-three. For. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. They were both, you know, half ninety-three. I love the story so far. Um, where where does it go from here? Well, I mean, I raised you know both of them up, and um, you know that was the first, the only pair I had. So you know, I bred them um, at the earliest convenience, and at that point in time, there were no, you know, benchmarks. Mean things were pretty simple back then, you know. Um, um, she was pretty big. I mean, Trooper fed pretty heavily. Uh, and you know, I actually drummed up some notes about her. I mean, I know eventually you're going to ask about the uh, history of the uh, blue female, so we're kind of blending that into one of the questions. But since we're on it, um, she was, um, you know, a sibling, you know, litter mate to Joan Collins, which was another, you know, blue-producing uh, female and also to um, Powder, which was a gorgeous. Right. Um, I, to the best of my knowledge, I mean, she would have been termed, and again, a lot of these terms have been applied to these snakes, and you know, there's such a fine line between them. But I mean, I would guess that she would have probably been considered a super blue, you know, uh, female because I'm pretty sure that she carried a lot of blue, you know, all the way from you know her color change, if I'm not mistaken. Now, my female, the Tim Morris, you know, the blue female, she was mainly green. Um, she was pretty much a green snake and, and turned blue, but obviously she had a lot of the blue genes in her. Um, and even at okay. that time, Trooper may have been aware of the blue potential, but I certainly was not, and I'm not even sure that he did. I mean, because mm-hmm. that litter that litter from that 4893, you know, the, the Joan Collins, the powder, the Tim Morris blue female, that litter that he had sort of, you know, pushed up sort of that blue potential all at the same time just so happened that I was, I guess I bred the first female out of that litter before he bred powder and before he bred um, Joan Collins or the animal that would become Joe Collins. So I think Greg Maxwell actually uh, named her Joan Collins before um, when he acquired her later down the line. Um, Gotcha. But she was a robust female and, you know, um, it's really interesting, you know, a lot of talk I read, you know, sometimes I read, you know, the talk and discussions about things and how much things have changed. You know, I know a lot of people, you know, like, um, you know, Terry uh, Phillips and I know Rico um, were big proponents of feeding, you know, mice to these animals. And, you know, Trooper was a pretty hefty feeder. Um, He went directly to the you know, small rats and, you know, rats. And I remember feeding, you know, that blue female medium rats. You know, I have all yeah. the data cards and there was quite a few medium rats that she, you know, took down. So, um, you know, I find that interesting just to diverge a minute just because there's been a lot of discussion. I, I noticed about how, you know, some people would argue that the mice are more healthier for the condors than rats. But, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. in some 
in in some ways, I'd almost beg to differ. Um, even though me personally, I've gone away primarily due to convenience uh, from feeding rats to mainly mice. But um, you know that that female was bred at uh, you know her first litter was um, at three years of age. You know wow. she was bred at two and a half years, which by today's standards would be pretty early. Yeah. Um, yeah. And not only that. Not only did she breed, I mean, I, I, you know, this is probably based on my own ignorance, but I mean, she was, you know, a pretty prolific female. I mean, just to give you a kind of a background on her breeding, um, you know, history, you know, her first litter occurred right around the three year mark. I mean, she hatched out on April 25th of 93. She was a 50 day maternally incubated, you know, animal out of that litter, 9.8 grams at birth. Um, her first litter was on, it hatched out on 4-1 of 96. So she actually, you know, uh, cult, you wow. know developed eggs and deposited them before her third birthday. Wow. Um, wow. There were 25 eggs total, um, 17 of which oh. uh, lived. Um, wow. That was a maternally incubated litter, um, mainly because very little was known on the artificial incubation. I know Trooper and Eugene were kind of working out details on a you know protocol that they were developing, but I knew also that that incorporated you know form of scientific incubators, which back then were way out of my price range and 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 you know ability to you know acquire anything like that. And the only other incubators were those hobobators they were selling, you know those clear plastic things for chicken eggs. So my only yeah. hope was you know maternally incubating and to put it all out there. I mean, I had no incubator, so if she didn't maternally yep. incubate, then I would have been shit out of luck. I mean, excuse my, you know, yeah. French, I don't know if we have to keep this G-rated, but... Um, uh, no, 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 yeah, no, 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 it's PG. It's PG-13 at least. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll keep it clean. It's just, you know, I mean, I would have been just totally out of luck there, but um, she maternally incubated that? that litter really well. You know, 17 out of 25 hatched out that year, and that was the first litter. Um, and I you know, bred her to the male that became the legend male, and that's the litter that produced Mr. Blue. Um, I bred her the very next year. So even though she maternally incubated a litter, this girl went through a breeding cycle the very next year with a <laughs> animal that came out of um, Trooper's 94 litter that Sean Stewart acquired. Um on, and this litter hatched on March 12th of 97. Um, she had wow. 29 eggs that time, and 18 hatched. Two. I had two bad and nine full-term dead, I think, from my notes here. Um, and that was maternal again, incubation again? Yeah, so back-to-back years, maternal incubation, and, you know, and clutch sizes of, you know, 25 to 29 on, on those two. Yeah. Now, in between those, I did give her a year off, and that's about the time that, you know, Mr. Blue was becoming, you know, a man, I guess, and I had um, sold him to John Holland, um, and so we we decided we wanted to try to breed him back to the female to see, you know, what kind of outcome we would get, you know, from doing that kind of a breeding. So she had 1998 off. Uh, we bred her again, 99 and 2000, uh, both years, and she had maternal 
um, maternally incubated litters both years. Um, the first year we incubated 20. There were 26 eggs in that first Mr. Blue, Ken Morris Blue female litter, and we hatched out about 10. So it wasn't a great yield, and we weren't really sure if it was because of the inbreeding thing or, you know, her incubating or whatever. Um, yeah. The second go around, she had 33 eggs, and we managed to get out about 13. Um, there were eight slugs in there and 12 stillborn. Um, there was one twin in there. I don't think it was one that survived. Um, mm. but there was another round of back-to-back maternal breedings. Then she was given a year off in 2001, and that's when Buddy and I put her together in 2002, or I guess late 2001, or early, mid-2001. Um, so she was given roughly, I guess, about a year and a half off. Um, she was bred to Daddy Pants, uh, which was an old yeller progeny. And um, this litter was maternal, uh, artificially incubated. Uh, 40 eggs, I think, is what we had there in 23 hatched out. And that was in a form of scientific, so uh, using, you know, Trooper and Eugene's uh, method of incubation by that point. Yeah, by that point, Buddy had, you know, pretty much down pat. So I didn't feel so bad about the, you know, the hatch ratios, I guess, in the maternal litters that she had, um, given the fact that we barely made 50% on a, you know, artificial incubation. And then there was one, you know, the clutch, you know, one breeding the, the after clutch, that back to Daddy Pants in 2004 and 2005. Is, the, clutch, the clutch sizes are, are are amazingly large. I mean, you just don't hear clutch sizes of you know 40 eggs, 30 eggs, um, you know. And that does that go back? Do you think because you know that animal was uh, was fed you know larger meals than what is typically thought of as is feeding animals, you know, kind of the current theory is smaller, mice versus rats, and less often, and keep them really thin and all that. Uh, but I, I just, I've never heard of a 40-egg, you know, clutch recently. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's a it's a good point. I mean, I'd have to go back and look at some of the other data cards for some of the other, you know, females I bred at the time because I kind of raised them all in the same way. Um but I also know, too, in talking to Trooper, that he seemed to think that, you know, the relative clutch mass for these remained fairly constant in his uh, collection of data on that, meaning, you know, the relative mass of the entire egg mass relative to the mass of the female. Um, so, yeah. he, you know, he basically figured that you'd either end up with, you know, um, a large quantity of smaller eggs or a smaller, smaller eggs, quantity right. of larger eggs. And um, okay. it may have just been the bloodline. I don't know. It would have been good to figure find out. And I don't know if he has the information either, but it would have been good to know, you know, what some of the uh, yields were from Joan Collins and from, you know, uh, powder. Right. And I don't know what they were. Um, so. Tim, you know, do you remember how long? How long did 4893 live? Do you know what her lifespan uh, was? She, she died in 2005. So okay. she lived about 12 years, and that's, you know, basically six litters out of her, um, four of which were maternally incubated, which takes a lot more out of them. 
Right. Wow. So to me, that's a pretty impressive. You know, that's that's a pretty impressive um, female there to to live. I, I think she, you know, lived a pretty good age and had a lot of reproductive stress. So, and again, I don't know if you attribute that to, you know, um, starting her earlier, as in, you know, breeding her at two and a half years, which, you know, like I said, I don't think you could get a female up to that size if you're feeding her all mice all the way through. And again, it wasn't anything, you know, premeditated on my part. I just kind of went along with whatever trooper was feeding them. And so... um, you know, that was kind of the way things went down, you know, back then. Yep. So Hey Tim, can I uh can I add a point for clarification? Sure. I just want everyone to know that the buddy that Tim was just referencing, that was not me. That was Buddy <laughs> Getzer. So just just want to clear that up. That way it's yeah, not Yeah, I, I think I think Buddy Bashan would have loved to have been part of that. <laughs> yes, I would have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was Buddy Getzker who, you know, got into it for a period of time and, you know, acquired, you know, several high-end, you know, snakes. So that's so really the, uh, the story. That's, that's the blue female sort of story there. Yeah, the, the story you tell, I mean, it, it's a, it's an awesome story, but the one thing that kind of, you know, just um, somebody that, that it, that's kind of really hearing it from the horse's mouth so to speak, for the first time is is the the amount of um, you know back crossing animals with a specific desired trait. You know that's what led to these you know legendary animals. Um, it doesn't look like, at least in today's breeding, a lot of that same kind of stuff is done. In other words, if you're looking for you want to produce um, high blue animals or a specific trait then you're more likely to go out and try to find animals that are not genetically related. I mean, can you comment about maybe the advantages and disadvantages of going that route versus what, what you and Trooper did with a lot of back crossing, um, you know, to go for your desired traits? Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, I mean, my gut feeling tells me that, you know, there definitely was a, you know, a small, I would probably venture a guess. I mean, definitely looking at the data here, you know, I would determine would be a statistically significant drop in the hatch rate of the, you know, two litters I did, you know, the two first litters I did with her versus the two I did with Mr. Blue. Um, So there probably was some sort of, you know, inbreeding depression maybe at work there to a degree. Um, but I also know later down the line, you know, John Holland and Trooper did several projects <clears throat> with, um, you know, with Carolina, um, where, you know, of note out of that breeding was the Sky Mail that was owned by B.J. Boyles. Uh-huh. Um, there was a breeding of Mr. Blue to Powder, which produced the okay. Iris female, I think, which was also owned by B.J. Arboreals, and there was okay. this forest um, animal, uh, forest animal that Trooper had produced um, that was bred to the uh, uh, Mr. Blue as well, which produced this male called Cajun Blue, uh, which was bought by Rich Culver. Um, 
So, you know, I know some of these animals have gone on to also produce some pretty iconic animals. For example, I know um, out of the first clutch, you know, the the blue Tim Morris, you know, Mr. Blue, Tim Morris, Blue Female, uh, first clutch, you know, the notables out of there were Pacific, which was a blue female. Um, I think Sean and uh, Christian ended up with her. I'm thinking that maybe she was first with Jeff Hudson, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, There was this one called Little Reggie, um, which was a kind of a super blue male. Uh, He had one confirmed clutch. Now, he was a very difficult animal. I mean, he was difficult to feed even up to a year old. Um, So I wasn't really thinking he was high on the, you know, the vitality list, I guess you could say, you know, having a lot of vitality yeah. as far as, you know, animals that come out of litter. But in the second clutch, though, we had several animals that, you know, um, went on to uh, have good um, reproductive histories. One of, one of the biggest ones, probably Mighty Blue. I know Rich Culver's had numerous clutches out of him. Um, yeah. And there yeah. was Mola. Uh, Mola, which was a super blue female that John Holland had uh, Goliath was a male with this blue ink spot um, that seemed to breed for several offspring. He had at least two clutches, I know. And then there was Azor, which was another uh, super blue male. He had a, kind of an on-again, off-again breeding history. I don't think he was really, you know, as prolific as some of the other ones like Mighty Blue. But, um, you know, there was definitely some notable animals out of there. Um, but then again, you know, that probably my favorite litter even beyond the first litter I did was probably with the, uh, you know, the daddy pants litter, which was more of an outcross than, you know, an in-cross sort of thing. You know, there was a potent Bioc line bred through, you know, old yeller and then on the daddy pants um, that we bred into that, you know, blue line, I guess. And that resulted in some really phenomenal animals, I remember. Were those blue? Were those blue animals, or um, what was I think phenomenal there were about some them? Blue ones. Yeah, there were some blue ones in there. I'm pretty certain. Um, there was one female that I had that was really nice. Um, I think there were just a lot more of the tricolor kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, for example, yep. the animal known as Crazy um, mm-hmm. was produced yeah. out of that litter. Uh, blue okay. Deuce, which was you know high blue uh, male, and he's was a prolific, you know, breeder. He came from that litter. Um, and there's probably several others that I don't remember. Um, but that was I love probably that my... Tri- you know, I love that tricolor look. The tricolor look. Yeah, I mean, uh, there were a lot of crazy pattern animals that came out of there. Um, yeah. That was probably my favorite litter in terms of diversity. Hmm. But I don't know. I mean, as far as inbreeding versus outcrossing, I know... You know, a lot of people are, you know, have strong opinions against the, you know, kind of, you know, kind of putting, you know, breedings like that together. But my rationale and John's rationale behind it was, you know, if you look at the, uh, you know, if you look at those bloodlines, you know, there's probably, you know, this is just going on memory, but there's there was probably, I think we counted, 10, 12, 13 different founders that contributed to that. So we were thinking that perhaps that would have provided enough 
you know, robustness in the ge- in the genetics to kind of allow a breeding like that to go down. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I suspect too. I guess one of my other rationales was that you know I suspected too that there is already a lot of you know um, inbreeding among just wild populations. Yeah, you know, right. especially like island populations on the Aru Islands because there were a lot of different little you know islands as part of that you know as part of that archipelago that um, there were probably some smaller islands where you know I would assume that inbreeding would have been more prolific. Right. Yeah, Tim, you mentioned uh, you've mentioned several times now a lot of these animals and you've described them as um, super blue. And maybe you could just kind of explain what that means to you, and maybe you could just kind of follow that up with how you noticed Mister Blue changing. Um, you know, if, if you even can remember how he changed. Well. I don't remember, to be honest, who turned the super blue. It wasn't me. Um, okay. So to be so to be honest, it it really doesn't have any significance or relevance to me. And I know at the time when the term came out, there was a lot of hot debate at the time about super blue and which animals could be called super blue and which ones couldn't. And I largely stayed out of that. You know, I mean, to me, it didn't really matter. Um, yeah. But I think the definition was that it was a chondro that morphed directly to blue or mostly to blue, you know, as opposed to a hormonally blue animal, um, you know, that was originally green, which, like I said, was really funny because I was always open when this first came out. You know, I was very open to admit, you know, that the, you know, the so-called Tim Morris blue female was really a green snake. You know, when I bred her, you know, the first time she turned blue over, you know, several breedings. So okay. she was definitely not a, you know, super blue, but that blue as part of their line was very evident when you look at some of these other females. You know, like I said, I think powder probably could have been considered a super blue female because I think she definitely did have more blue highlights and overtones uh, directly from you know, from her, you know, color change. change. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, you know, but like I said, I mean, I know given that definition, if that's the definition, they morph directly to blue or mostly to blue, then, you know, Mr. Blue would definitely have fit that bill and so would have little Reggie um, because both of those were predominantly blue um, coming out. In fact, both of those animals sort of had sort of a reverse coloration, which you see in, you know, like um, even in Jake, I believe, and also in uh, Frosty, um, where you typically see the blue diamonds are actually green diamonds, and then the body color is predominantly blue. Blue. Okay. Wow. But I tried to steer, you know, out of the whole label thing because, you know, I just felt like, you know, at that point you're really just splitting hairs. And and even if there was a so-called super blue, does it mean, you know what I mean? Does it really mean anything? Because yeah. even if you yeah. take, right. I mean, even if you take that powder was a super blue animal and you took and, and, and you took Mr. Blue and bred her to her, you would have assumed you would have gotten more super blues out of it if it had any sure. significance to it, you know, to the label. Yeah. 
you right. know, but then, you know, the, the, the female that produced Mr. Blue was not a super blue female. So what does that tell you about the way the genetics roll? To me, it, like I said, it was kind of an, in, you know, more or less an insignificant thing, although it seemed to turn into sort of an advertising thing for many to get, you know, some more money. And, and maybe there was something to it. Like I said, I, I didn't, I don't know a lot about the powder of Mr. Blue, you know, litters or the, the offspring that came from those. I do know that there weren't any animals out of there that rivaled Mr. Blue. So, okay. No, that's, that's, that's uh very good. And I had not really put, uh, those two thoughts together that, um, you know, maybe it's really cool that an animal turns directly blue, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it has a higher propensity to throw blue offspring. Yeah, well, I mean, to me it was, you know, people were getting to the point of denigrating, you know, hormonally blue females. I see. And <laughs> I was like, okay, well, you know, say what you want. Say what you want to say, but my hormonally blue female produced Mr. Blue, so what do you got to say about that? You know, and so, I mean, I mean that, that was kind of the thing. I mean, it's kind of like, okay, well, there is a difference between the two, but does it really mean anything, you know? And so, you know, and that's the thing. So many people in the genetics with these guys and their color change, the way it goes down and everything else is so complex. So I think sometimes, you know, people were trying to make some attempts at oversimplifying you know what they're you know what they were observing, which was accurate in what they were observing, but the you know the um, conclusions they drew from it or hopeful conclusions were probably not you know based on uh, observation or what panned out when those animals were bred. Can you talk about some um, amazing? Uh, blue chondro history. Um, one thing we haven't touched on are some of the animals that Mr. Blue himself produced. Um, you... Well, yeah, I did. I did touch oh. on that a little bit. Um, you know, the first, um, like I said before, that I, one of the notable animals from the Carolina Mr. Blue pairing was the sky male um, that BJ okay, Orioles right. acquired. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, those are most of the ones I know of. I, I think in John Hall and I were just having a discussion about that. We were trying to wrap our brains around some of the other ones. And, you know, he and I both realized that we, we've forgotten quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Again, uh, you know, a lot of that stuff was happening right around the time um, that the internet, you know, was, was coming in and, Boy, it's uh, so much easier to save those lineage cards when they're just, um, you know, forwarded to you on an email or messaged to you, and, you know, you can just file them away and have them forever as opposed to being on a piece of paper or, or whatever. Yeah, and I've got, you know, and speaking of that, I mean, I've got a whole library of those lineages. I mean, I've got every animal that I ever worked with that, you know, had a lineage associated with it. Um, as well as many of the I wound up producing um, at the time when uh, Trooper and John were doing a bunch of these projects with Mr. Blue, I wound up making um, many lineages. In fact, I think I was the first, if not one of the first, to kind of put lineages on a computer because at the time, you know, Trooper just kind of wrote them down on the back of the data card 
And so, you know, I kind of took this desktop publishing program and sort of made them, and he was so impressed with them, he wanted me to make them for all of his animals. So, you know, I got mm-hmm. quite a library of the different, you know, some of the different animals that he worked with. Unfortunately, not all of them were named, which I guess would have made it a little bit easier uh, right. to, 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 you know, track down, you know, visuals or whatever, but a lot of them were named. Of course, my mine was probably the least, you know, um, I never did catch on to the naming game. I think people got frustrated the fact that I didn't give my blue female a name and just simply started calling it the Tim Morris blue female. <laughs> Always referred to her as forty eight ninety three, you know. So um I should have gotten into the naming game and even legend I didn't name him that. I think um I don't know how that name came up, but I don't think I was the one that attached that label to him either, so it's good stuff, man. That is good stuff. Yep. Hey Tim, I got a quick question for you. Um so when Mr. Blue started the morphing process, was it at the time was it different from any other chondro that like he went you know the the history is that he went directly from his baby colors to a blue animal was he the first animal that's been documented to do that or had other animals that Trooper had produced previous to him had the same color transformation? Well, again, I don't. Think I mean I, many people would say, and I think it is accurate that he was the first blue, you know, I guess super blue animal produced. Um, first, certainly it's the first blue male. Um, he did go pretty much right to blue. I mean, I've got his color change, most of his color change pictures. Um, I did lose a couple of them because originally he was slated to be sold to a guy in the Philippines, which thankfully that in hindsight uh, fell through because that would have altered <laughs> Condor history quite a bit, I think. You yes, know, it would of, have. You know, it, what what he produced thereafter. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the best of my recollection. So, like I said, I don't, I don't think Trooper was really aware of the blue potential with these animals. And I'm sure had he right. been in tune with it, we would have paid quite a bit or these animals wouldn't have been offered for sale. Um, right. You know, so and it was really timely, you know, too at the time because, you know, the condor market went through some interesting times back then. Um, when I first got into it, I mean, Trooper and Eugene were pretty much the main dealers, um, of these animals. And a couple of years after that, I guess 95 or so, maybe 96, we started seeing a lot of imports coming in and right. people like Bob, Bob Clark and, uh, several other, you know, uh, breeders who knew importers were getting a hold of these animals and the bottom literally fell out of the condor market. I mean, I remember once going to the Orlando show and there were all these, locality-type chondros for $250, $300. Now, many of them weren't feeding, or they fed, obviously, to get to that point that they were prior to importation. But then once imported, I think several of these were just sold as is. 
Um, they looked okay at the time, um, but I think a lot of them wound up dying. But I remember the right. panic at first that, um, with Trooper and Eugene thinking, oh, my God, you know, here goes the condo market. How are we going to compete with that? And, of course, there was this huge bandwagon that sort of formed on this whole purebred, you know, locality thing, you know, almost like with the Kingsnakes, right. you know, back in the 70s and 80s. Um, so it was almost like, you know, even at that time, there was no label known as the designer condros. I mean, it was very simply Trooper and Eugene were into these snakes. They were breeding them, and they happened to have the foresight to maintain, you know, the genealogies on them. But there was nothing mostly noted about it other than Al Zulich's one female was, you know, a blue female. Um, but that was the only other thing of note. Again, Trooper made know more about it. I think he would probably say that maybe he knew more about the blue potential, though he never you know, really shared it to me. But I, to be honest with you, I've never asked him about it. So that's a good question for right. me to ask him the next time I see him. Um, yeah, that's what I was wondering, too, if that was, you know, was that his long-term goal was to produce, you know, blue chondras? I mean, you well, know, I would... Yeah. Go ahead. I mean, I, I I remember him telling me, because we had a discussion shortly after that first show where I bought the first animal, where I asked him, I said, well, what is it, what what do you have against yellow animals, you know? Because I love right. that neon yellow. To me, that was just awesome. Sure. Um, and he said to me, he said, well, you know, they're, they're kind of cool. He said, but the maroons and the reds kind of go through a more dramatic color change. And he said, and I specifically like keeping back the darker animals. Um, and so that's what he did. So I started getting an idea of what to look for in some of these litters, you know. And um, By dramatic color change, I just know, you know, it takes longer for the maroons typically to kind of settle upon, you know, their, their adult coloration than yellows, which can turn in a matter of days. Um, right. But I know he was holding back, you know, the darker, you know, animals um, at that time, the darker maroons. And I were, and I know you remember this, buddy. I mean, Mr. Blue was a very dark, very minimal right. patterned um, baby. Yes. Yep, I so sure do. I definitely do. knew there was I something about that him that was worth keeping. Table. Yeah, that was only a thousand <laughs> bucks, wasn't it, for a baby? Yeah. Was, but then again, I mean, yeah, now it seems bucks. ridiculous. Yeah, now Jim, it seems ridiculous, but, but yeah, right. I mean, back then, though, <laughs> you know. Yeah, back then, I had a nickel know, for every time I heard yeah, Buddy say that he wished he'd bought that animal. I mean, I'd be rich. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, but back then, like I was going to say, I mean, you know, the condo market at that point was flooded with a lot of these imports of two hundred and fifty dollars, so a thousand dollars was kind of outlandish. And again, yep. there, there, the, this whole "quote unquote" designer market had yet to really blossom, you know. So it was really, in my opinion, you know, the, you know, the Mister Blue sort of revived the high-end condo market and sort of gave a reason why you wanted to buy, you know, these animals from Trooper and Eugene, you know. And then, of course, right. the computer condo, which was a sibling to um, the Legend Mail. Um, also sort of spoke to that as well. Yep, So the exactly. condo market sort of turned around, you know, after a lot of people 
failed at trying to raise up these imported babies, um, things kind of swung around and, you know, the market kind of picked up and prices started getting back to where they were. Well, Tim, some things don't change. We still have people that are trying, struggling to, um, you know, raise up or uh, have success with $250 uh, imported chondros. And, you know, like it was probably back in the 90s, they're not, they're not having a lot of luck doing that. Right. Well, as we all know, you know, these snakes are very good about hiding anything that's wrong with them and they can survive for months acting completely normal and then just end up dead one day. Yep. Which I think makes it difficult, you know. Um, You know, one of the other things that's pretty unique that I thought about and, you know, about my own history in this and in looking at some of the other people, I mean, there's, you know, back then, I mean, there was Buddy Gester, and you had, um, uh, who was it, um, the guy who started Rare Earth, I think his name was Joe something, but he was into pharmaceuticals, and he started getting into condos. And um, there's some other people with a lot of money, and that started bumping up the prices of these high-end animals to quite, quite an amount, which today is still you know, being fetched for a lot of these high-end animals. But the issue is, you know, some of these high-end animals are just as vulnerable up and dying, you know, as any other animal. So it makes it a really difficult thing. And I know it it makes it even more difficult when, you know, you sell a high-end animal to somebody and it dies a month later. I mean, what do you do? And I know it's created some, you know, you know, hard interactions, I guess, between buyer and seller. Even recently, I've you know heard of incidents going on um, on the forums, and it's really a tough thing because um, you could have an animal that's just thriving and send it somewhere, and you know it's not doing well. I mean, I've had a couple people send animals back because of that reason. I would get them going again and and do that, you know, and. Um, it's a tough call when you got that much money going out for, you know, for a snake. And, um, you know, the point I was getting at was, you know, when I was going through, um, you know, a personal situation, divorce, you know, I had to kind of, you know, at that time the reptile collection I had was, you know, quite an asset. Um, but through that was something very revealing in that, you know, up to that point and even now because I hadn't bought it anything since then, condor-related. It's only sort of been, you know, traded. Um, But up to that point, I realized I'd only invested a total of less than $5,000 for every condor I've ever owned. And for the kind of collection that I had at that time was, you know, pretty phenomenal. Um, Yep. You know, where people, you know, when Buddy Getzker got into it, I mean, he had well over 100 thousand invested in animals in fact i'm pretty sure he paid you know 12 to 15 thousand in cash and goods you know for the daddy pants animal so wow um you know people with people with the money were willing to kind of put it out there and really start bumping up you know the price of these unique animals you know what i mean um yeah like i said that's, that's a great point yeah, the double-edged sword to that, though, is, you know, when something goes wrong, you know, the the interactions between the, the people that were making the deal, you know, and, you know, it's tough. 
Well, what what puts a, another layer of difficulty on it is is there's at least in my mind there's a difference between somebody that produces an animal and let's say it's valued at you know let's say three or four thousand dollars you produce that animal and you sell it and then something goes wrong with it it's a little bit easier at least for me to maybe make right on that as opposed to you purchased an animal from somebody else for five or six thousand dollars you then resold that animal and something goes wrong with it now you're a seller that was actually an initial buyer and you're out the five or six thousand and then the the, the secondary buyer buys it, and now they're out five or six thousand dollars. And at least to me, that that scenario makes it just a little bit more complicated than if it's something that you just produced. It's a little bit easier to maybe make good on it. Right. Yeah, I mean it's tough. I mean, I I, I remember um, I had that guy of rare earth, and I can't remember his name. I was trying to think of it when I was talking to, to John earlier. Um, he had bought two of the Mr. Blue blue female animals from me, babies, and one of them died probably about a month into his care, and I remember just giving him one of the other ones I had. You know, I usually yeah. try to give, you know, the benefit of the doubt, but, you know, a lot of times with high-end adults, you can't do that, you know, because you don't right. have that kind of inventory, first of all, and second right. of all, you assume that when an animal gets to that size, you know, and if it's been in somebody's care for a month, you know, makes it, you know, makes it tough. But I mean, I, I, you know, to bring up kind of a unique example uh, or an illustrative example, rather, um, again, going back to my time of, you know, divorce, I had produced one of the best litters, you know, I I ever had. Um, I think it was with, um, who was I with? It was the 04 litter. So that was with Sean. And, um, Rich Culver at the time really wanted this bloodline and he bought, you know, three animals from me and he picked them out. I mean, I had pictures of all of them. And in the time he lives in Alaska that we actually got to a point of getting these things ready for shipment. You know, one of the three had died. I mean, it just, I mean, it was rolling along like nobody's business. I mean, these things were, you know, eight or nine months old. I mean, they were already eating hoppers and things like that. And, um, so I wound up at that point, you know, this was getting to close to a year old. And, you know, I wound up just, you know, replacing it for him. Um, he actually benefited from that quite a bit because at that point, you know, I could sex the animals. So we knew what the sex of the two he had remaining. And so, mm-hmm. you know, he wound up getting two, he wound up getting two females and a male where he would have ended up with, you know, a pair plus two, an unknown. Two so, yeah. 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 But, you know, the point being, these animals were flawless and all of a sudden this one out of nowhere just started acting strange and within two days died. And, you know, something like that can happen to any of these guys. I mean, it's just, they're, they're really a, a very sensitive species, you know, and, you know, I feel for the people that, you know, spend a lot of money on these things and it happens to them because invariably it's going to, fortunately for me, it only happened with animals that either, you know, I produced or, you know, we're on breeding loan or something like that, but, you know, it can get, you know, it's it's become the focal point for many of uh, issues between, you know, uh, people with the animals. Yeah. And there's no, you know, there's no (laughs) written rules about, about any of it. You know, there's, there's nothing that you can 
put in writing that says, well, you know, you're a bad breeder or you're a bad seller because the animal died for X reason at X time. I mean, there, you know, there's no consistency in, in what it is to make things right. Or, you know, is it, is it the seller's fault? Is it the buyer's fault? You know, there's just no black and white there. And that, that makes it very difficult, especially when you're talking about potentially, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. Well, and that's, you know, and I was saying that to Buddy earlier today when I sent him a couple of text messages, I was like, you know, if these animals were only fetching 50 bucks a piece, you wouldn't hear this kind of dialogue, you know, and I think, you know, some, at some point, you know, for me, and again, I'm not as involved with the, with the, you know, the condor community as I once was, but I do feel that, you know, once the need for having to make money from these things becomes a priority, then it makes, it makes things really tough. You know, for me, it's always been a hobby. I mean, it's been a standing hobby. It's been a hobby that helped kind of give me some extra money when I need it, you know, at times, but it wasn't like a need, you know, and I think that's where it was easier for me to just give up a baby because I didn't really see it as giving up $1,500. I saw it as, you know, this guy just lost a baby. It probably was no fault of his own because I knew myself that I've had animals just out of nowhere, just up and die that were rolling along perfectly. So, you know, now if it was a year down the road, then, you know, there's not much you can do about it. But, you know, I happen to have a few, you know, other babies from that same litter. So I just kind of, you know, replaced it. But, you know, some yeah. people, like I said, you're yep. not in that position to do that. It's very difficult, you know, to do. But then, you know, the stakes weren't as high then, you know. I mean, I was, these babies were $1,500 yeah. a piece, I believe, for the Mr. Blue, blue female, you know, babies at that time. So. Yeah. Well, those are still, you know. Uh, for the time, and even for this time, those stakes for a lot of people those are, are those are high stakes, you know. Yeah. Right. Yep. <clears throat> Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're you know like Tim had said we're you know we're dealing with we're dealing with living creatures and um, we like you know things can be go really well with these animals and things can go really bad with these animals just as quickly. So you know it's. You know, you have to be prepared for that. And, uh, you know, oftentimes, you know, you may have to, you know, do, you know, do something like Tim has done, like, you know, replace an animal or, or you know, go out on a limb and, and just say, hey, you know what, an animal's lost. Um, we don't really know the cause, but, you know, and offer to make it right. And I think that's, you know, that just speaks volume about the, you know, the keeper and the breeder and and the hobby in general it's uh yeah you know it, it it's just one of those things you know and, and it's really on how you handle those situations is uh really reflects you know i guess who you are and, and what you're about no <clears throat> well said i mean i agree it's um a lot of hard decisions need to be made Sometimes and um, a lot of times there is no right decision. Right. Yep. Yep. Agreed. Hey, Tim, I, I, I know this a, is kind of going back. I'll, I'll go ahead, buddy. Question for you, Tim, if you don't mind. We you briefly mentioned it, and I'm glad you mentioned it because um, I I think we could you know maybe you could shed a little bit more light than anyone else we've had on the show. You talked about Al uh, Zulik's blue female. Uh-huh. 
she she is noted in some of the uh some of the blue line lineage animals and I noticed also in the calico animals as well. Um and from what you remember, was she a wild caught animal? Um <clears throat> I yeah, she was. In okay. fact, um, Except, uh, if I I mean I if I could I, I wouldn't have known these um facts on my own, but um through some research that I did and just kind of you know, with the bloodline themselves, there was something posted back on uh, February of 2007, an excerpt um, that I thought of a post that Trooper Walsh had made about that line because apparently there were some, you know, there was some dialogue going back and forth as to whether or not Al Zulich actually bred that female more than once or not, you know, because it only appears in that one breeding in any of the lineages that I've ever seen. Right. And Trooper made note that, you know, that the only successful breeding did, um, Alan did um, with the wild-caught female, um, which was actually on loan from this guy named Larry Rouch. Um, right, okay. Was, you know, was sired by this male of unknown locale, which was the double-double, or the double-zero-four Alzulich. And that breeding took right. place in 1984. Um Now, Trooper said he thought that there were two breedings of those animals, but the pedigree indicates only one. Um, and, of course, the Alzulich uh, 14 and 15 were the two interbred animals from that litter that also constitute part of that blue line. Um, but, again, he doesn't know of any, Trooper doesn't know of any other documented Zulich blue line breedings by any other people, so... Okay. Yeah, that's All the right. most I you know, know? based on what Trooper would know. Gotcha. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't know if she was a yellow baby or a, a, a red neonate? I have no idea. I mean, I think Greg okay. Stevens actually got a chance to talk to Al Zulich about the animal, but his recollection of it was somewhat fuzzy, and I think they got him as adults, so okay. I don't think they would have known. Right. Very good. Very good. Go ahead, Bill. Tim, I wanted to ask you. Yeah, I wanted to ask Tim. Um, you had mentioned um, that you weren't quite as involved in the chondro community currently as you have been in the past. What are you are you keeping chondros now? Yeah, um, I mean, I have very few actually. I have about five, um, three of which weren't produced by me, so it's kind of gone down quite a bit. Um, but I still have about 30, you know, 30 snakes. And, you know, even back when I was more heavily into the chondros, I mean, I've always kept, you know, a diverse collection of of snakes. I mean, you know, I look back on some of the photos of my reptile room when I lived in this one house, and I was like, wow, I had those? Where did they ever go, you know? I mean, I had a whole variety of different things from, you know, ackies, monitors, lizards to blue tongue skinks to, you know, spotted pythons, house snakes, king snakes, you name it. Um, I've always kind of enjoyed having a diverse collection, you know, and, um, you know, nowadays I have, you know, a pair of Angolan pythons, a few king snakes, um, you know, gray banded kings, 
a pair of hog nose. I've got a pair of annulated boas, which I've been trying very hard to get some babies from. Um, nice. Yeah, you know, i got a few, you know, ball pythons along with everybody else in the world. Huh. Um, awesome. That's what I like I to hear. A, you hear that, buddy? Yeah, right. You, um, you hear that, buddy? I, <laughs> I hear it. I hear it. Here. Yeah, I got a few Erian giant carpets, um, okay. a few pine snakes, northern pines I keep in the classroom, and a Brazilian rainbow boa. Um, actually, I have a boa constrictor somebody gave me here, a sun glow albino arabesque, whatever that means. But um, <laughs> So, you know, a little bit of everything going on. So I, I still yeah. like keeping, you know, a variety of different things. Um you know, I still have this female there. I guess they, it has been referred to as the Tim Morris Blue Female 2. Um, she's still around. Um, and I have one of the um, males that was produced from a litter that Christian and I did with uh, Blue Deuce um, back in, I think it was, it was 2011, I think it was, when they were produced. Um, so... Yeah, I got a few things. Um, there's one animal that I got from a buddy of mine who has gotten out of it. Um, you know, um, buddy Colin. Um, he had a really nice high black pair of beox that he got down in Daytona uh, years back, and he produced some babies from it. And I have a really nice yellow black um, animal from that litter, a male. So. I'm so- so it's Work, a captive on bred beaf. Yes. Yeah. That's wow. One. one of the very one of the very few I've ever even heard of. Really? I thought a yeah. lot of people it have just seems like these days, no? Captive bred. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you guys are more in tune with the market or what's out there. I I I've I assumed I, this is a you know purebred. Um, you know, I guess how you would call it high black. I mean. Um, yeah, you know, male. I mean, he's a he's gorgeous. So hopefully, he turns into a breeder. Both, you know, the animals I got from him, uh, the three animals I got were, were all hatched out in 2011, but they were really undersized. I mean, he got to a point where he was feeding them maybe once every two or three months, so they were grossly oh, wow. undersized. I mean, not malnourished. You weren't seeing ribs and all that stuff, but they were just really small. Oh. Um, but they're coming along, and you know, I'm going to try to breed that. Mail to something good. Maybe next year he'll be a, a size. I'm pretty sure. Awesome. Yeah, so, yeah all the people that I've come across, all the people that I've come across and have um, breeder ready female biacs are not breeding into biac males. Really? Well, I was actually mm. thinking of you know trying to insert him into some blue line or something because, like I said, when you know trooper bred a beak to one of the mutts at the zoo that sort of started the whole you know um, old yeller line and I've got pictures from several of the sibs from that breeding and they were phenomenal so I think that beak blood adds a nice wild card to a lot of you know the other yeah. mixed breed lines exactly, exactly. and that's yep. why that's why I've People aren't breeding Biak to Biak. I, I mean, I, I, that's just my personal thought. But yeah. Well, not only can, that too. You can I mean, get some they, crazy. Op- not only that, but yeah, the outcrosses are phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, you might be able to breed out their attitude a little bit. 
Yeah, <laughs> good point. <laughs> yeah, nobody wants to take yeah. two, nobody wants to take two nasty snakes and breed them together and get more nasty snakes, you know. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's one. He's I will not say, bad. I mean, he's he's pretty tolerable. Yeah. Yeah, he's pretty tolerable. So. I will say, say I did a, so anyway. a, I did a Bioc pairing in. 2010, the baby's hatch in 2011, and um, I was surprised the number of people that were known chondro breeders at that time bought those babies. They they nice, wanted yeah. the ox, but but they were afraid to pick up a farmed animal, um, even if it was very young, and a lot of a lot of people who were keeping them breeding condors at that time scooped them up. And of course I was, you know, selling the yellows very close to farm bread prices anyway. So, you know, mm-hmm. a couple, couple people bought two or three animals. Um, but yeah, now, so the I think the more, yeah, they're Biox. Yep. Actually, so Zach Biaz has a female and, uh, yeah, the one the, animal that chi- I held back. Chiquita. Yeah. Chiquita. And uh, the one animal I held back. or maroon? Um, There was a, there was four red babies. The rest, the remainder of the clutch were yellow. Um, There were 22. The female was a yellow. The the female was a yellow. The male was a red. Okay. And um, there were... 22 eggs, 17 hatched, and uh, four four babies were red. Um, I kept back initially two reds and three or four yellows. And like I said, a lot of people were like, you know, I want to be ock, let me know when they're ready. And so they, they went really quickly. And then I eventually, you know, people started asking, hey, do you have any other animals? Like goes right, guys. You know, you hold on to these animals, and people contact you. Like, oh, I could probably like a kind of like trooper. I don't have any animals available, but what, what are you thinking <laughs> about? Um, and um, so, I wound up. I only wound up with one animal left in that clutch, and it was a uh, male, and he was a red neo, and uh, Zach's female is a yellow. So, I think Zach either this season or next season is going to try a sib to sib pairing. So yeah, but that that's definitely um, they went quick. I was surprised because uh, Ben Evans had done a chondro, a Bioc pairing, a couple of years previous to that, and um, we were together at one of the Mid Atlantic Reptile shows and just chatting about, hey, what are you thinking about doing this year? And I, I had mentioned him about doing a Bioc pairing. And he was he was his advice was don't do it. You you know the babies unless you price them right at farm bread prices they're not, they're not going to move so i just took it as mm-hmm. advice and i priced them low just and and they all went really quickly so and they don't have attitudes as at least mine didn't as babies and as mm. adults yeah this smells pretty 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 good very cool so tim here it is. It's 2016, and we're coming up on. It's going to be what the 20th anniversary 
of the clutch at Produce, Mr. Blue. Can you believe it's been 20 years? Yeah, uh came up in the conversation with Johnny Blue today, and he said that Mr. Blue is doing fine, looks great. Um, okay. Wow. He's 20, he's 20 yeah. years old? 20 years old and going strong, he said. Incredible. Incredible. So, do Well, Tim, maybe you could tell us about uh, where Mr. Blue is right now. Um, you've kind of mentioned his current keeper's name, but a lot of people may not realize the uh, the association of the name. Yeah, well, he's owned by John Holland, who uh, also lives in Maryland. And um, he's owned them since 1997 or 98. I can't remember which year it was. You know, the year he bought them from me, but he's he's owned them for the uh, majority of his life. And he's actually had a lot of, you know, interesting things, too, and a lot of different pairings and different things. So I was talking to him today, putting a bug in his ear, but, you know, having you guys uh, put him on the air at some point because he's got a lot of condor history I'm sure he can uh, share. I mean, especially with, um, you know, with the... Um, you know, with uh, Rico and everything else, he was pretty close with Rico, I know, and uh, knows quite a bit about a lot of things associated with him. And he's done a lot of interesting projects himself, and a lot of different things outside of even Mr. Blue. Yeah, you think he'd uh, you think he'd want to come on, Tim? Uh, he might. He was, you know, he was telling me that uh, he doesn't feel like he would make for interesting. Uh, Answer, but then I was just saying it's more or less just a conversation, and you guys are just trying to, you know, get some history down, um, which is what which is good to have. And he's got a lot, you know, to offer in that regard. I think. Um, yeah, have to work on him. You know, you know, buddy, we've talked about, and one thing that I, uh, I wanted to do was a Rico Memorial show. Right. Right. You know, maybe get, get you know maybe get a round table. Um, and it sounds like he'd be a he'd be a great great person to have in that. Absolutely, I actually tried to get John on last year, and um, just the same thing Tim had said. He was concerned he wouldn't offer be able to offer enough content, but maybe we can uh, we can ask him again and see it, see if he'd be willing to come on and talk. Yeah, because he you know no, you get a round you you get a roundtable environment. Um, you know, Tim's obviously. Uh, very verbal and is a great, he's a super easy guest, but you know, you get somebody that's a little bit more reserved, you get him in a round table environment where there's three guests instead of one. And boy, that's, that's pretty easy. All right. Sounds like we'll, we'll try it. We'll give him, we'll give it a try. Okay. We'll get John, John maybe, back on the show. Maybe, um, maybe Tim can help us. Yeah. Just let me know if you need some help. I'll do what I can. Okay. We'll recruit you, Tim. Um, <laughs> thank you. The, uh, but so it's been 20 years and I, you know, I think, I think back and I'm like, wow, it's been 20 years since, since Tim had that, had that clutch. And, uh, as I mentioned, uh, I went over to Tim's a couple of times and we would, you know, hang out and drink a beer and talk snakes and Tim would go, okay, it's time to go try to feed chondros and, you know, I I went into the Tim's reptile room at the time, and you know Tim had a I remember Tim had a red pencil light on his forehead, and he had these old tongs, and he is working these baby snakes, and I am like, my jaw dropped, and I you know I heard that they were difficult to establish, 
I mean, Tim was working them. Um, he likes to talk to his snakes. I never really knew this about Tim until he actually <laughs> was was doing this to his to the chondros. I didn't realize he actually, you know, he he gave them encouragement um, with expletives and um, <laughs> right. And so I'm sure we've all been I, there. Uh, <laughs> yep, and I was like, "Wow, I don't think I, I'm, I was, that really convinced me not to get condors for a while. I mean, seeing that in process, I, I didn't think I was up for it. I mean, I think Tim you didn't was, think you had that idea, my exact huh? word. Um, and uh, you know, but Tim, you know, looking back, you know, 20 years, you're still involved with the hobby, which is you know pretty amazing because. You know, there's a lot of people that come. They come in real hot and heavy to the hobby, and and, and they they leave quickly. Um, you're still involved. You know, what are the what are the big changes that you've seen for you know? Just take for instance, Condro husbandry. You've already talked a, a couple. Um, you know, you know the mice versus rats is one thing, but what else is is much different today? Um, well, certainly the prevalence of um, really wild-looking animals is, you know, much more common now than then. Um, you know, there's a lot more people that have them. There's a lot more, you know, being produced. Um, so I think that's kind of cool. And you know, it's just a lot of lot lot more information available. Like I said, back when I first got into it. I was very intimidated by the prospect of trying anything artificial in terms of incubation, you know, right. because I know, you know, Trooper oh, and Eugene yeah. both use the form of incubators. Uh, yeah. But I have yeah, to was say, for good, for good reason. I, you know, yeah, for good reason. Yeah, but I do have to say, you know, um, you know, I think some people, you know, these days, maybe more so than back then, but maybe not. I don't know. It's just, you know, memory fades after a while, but, um, you know, a lot of, I see a lot of people when I do, you know, forage around a couple different, you know, the forums on Facebook and, you know, once in a while when I get over to the MDF, the actual forum, um, you know, sometimes I just get the impression a lot of, you know, it's like breeding is the goal, you know, where, you know, for me, getting into it, just watching the color change, you know, I wanted babies. You know, I didn't want adults initially. You know, I wanted to raise right. these things up from, you know, from babyhood because, first of all, it was the baby colors that attracted me to the species, you know, not the end product. Mm. And, you know, maybe fortunately for me, there weren't these teaser pictures like these crazy tricolors and high blues and everything else you can look up now you know, that people are posting left and right because, you know, that's what's attracting a lot of these people to these these animals. And I think that can be a double-edged sword, you know. that You know, like I said, the first thing that attracted me was the high yellow babies, you know, not the high yellow adults, but the yellow neonates. And, right. you know, I wanted the babies because I wanted to see them in that color because that's what I was jazzed about. And I wanted to see them go through the color change. I mean, to me, that was a big thing. And for me, it progressed, you know, just a step at a time. I mean, I didn't even think that I'd get to a point of breeding these things. Didn't even know what right. I was going to do as far as breeding these things. Um, I know Trooper had done several maternal incubations, and even the animals that I acquired from him were maternally incubated. So he's, 
even though he was still working with the artificial at the time, he was still doing quite a bit of the, you know, maternal incubations. And I tell people all the time that, it, you know, that I talk to whenever I do uh, talk to them. In fact, there was a real nice guy and a girl that came down from Pennsylvania that picked up an animal from me back in uh, December. And, you know, and I, I, you know, I told them, as I tell a lot of people, I said, man, you know, you've got to do maternal incubation at least once. You've got to do it. I mean, there's no, to me, there was no bigger thrill than watching the female do what she would do in the wild. And the day you see these babies start to pop out, you know, I mean, I would gladly lose a half a litter just to watch that whole thing go down. I mean, that Mm. to me is part of the thrill. And I think these days it seems like maybe it's just my you know, take on it, but a lot of people are, you know, concerned with getting babies and selling babies and things like that, where to me I was, I felt like anyway at the time that I was more into just experiencing, you know, sort of the thrills a step at a time. And like I said, it's it's really a matter of perspective because when I got into it, there was no internet. And the only cool pictures of condors I got to see were in the Ross and Marzak books. So, you know, these really crazy, wicked animals were just starting to show up, you know, a couple of years into, you know, my first keeping these animals. So, you know, I guess, I guess in some ways I feel it sort of robs some people of the desire to keep these animals from the ground up, if that makes any sense. Right. Be a, you know, be a snake keeper these, before a snake breeder. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it, well, like I said, to me, it's kind of like people have their eye on the end product versus the animal from the ground up, for example, like, I, you know, probably killing the point, but, you know, I wanted the babies and raised them up. I had no idea what these things would turn into. I had no idea right. what I'd ever produce, if I'd ever produce anything. You know what I mean? I didn't get these things with the eye on what I'd ultimately produce, I guess is what I'm trying to say, and I think a lot of people do get them with the eye of, you know, the crazy colors that they're going to produce. And so that makes it a little more difficult. I guess it was a lot more simpler for me back then. I mean, I, you know. Right. I just, and, and and to be quite frank, I mean, maybe that was the best strategy because, you know, my ignorance certainly didn't turn out too bad. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I mean, to put it frank, I mean, I, I mean, after that point, I mean, I had a lot of people who were like, man, you got to go pick out my babies for me, and you got to pick out the baby. Which one's going to be high blue? And I'm like, God, man, I have no idea. You know, I mean, I've, I've kept a couple whole backs before that I thought were really wicked cool babies that turned out to be plain green adults. And so, you know, there's no telling, you know, um, in some cases, you know, what's going to be, you know, the killer animals out of litter. Well, Tim, right. I think that's a right. it's an excellent point, and it's almost the uh, the story of if you try to take shortcuts in some things, then you end up, um, you know, ultimately, um, you know, getting burned. And you know, I think well, you're paying that, the high dollars for it. You're paying the high dollars, and you know, you probably you would know, uh, and you and Buddy would know much better than I. But trying to transition adult animals into a collection is probably you know, quite a bit more risky than transitioning babies or sub-adults. 
Yeah, and that's a great you know, thing, you know, because there's a lot of times you send an adult somewhere and it stops feeding or does something weird, and you know, and that's that's that to me is has also been one of the big challenges, and it's also a very difficult um, challenge, even more so now with the you know the internet, such a double-edged sword, um, you know, because the customer support for these animals can be laborious. You know, you want to yeah, sell an animal, right. but then it's almost like I understood Trooper's point. He wanted to sell to people he, you know what I mean? If he was going to sell one personally, he wanted to sell one to, you know, somebody who he felt, you know, could manage them. You know what I mean? Sure. And sure. there's a lot of times people get upset when these things go to the floor of the cage and, wow, they're not on the perch. What am I supposed to do? And it's like, hey, man, <laughs> that's what these things do. And... Yeah, these right. kinds of things, I guess, never alarmed me early on, and it actually turned out, you know, later, years later, when we did the arboreal symposiums out in uh, St. Louis, uh, we had we were lucky enough one year to get this guy David Wilson over, who had, was one of the first to ever do, you know, um, legitimate field research on these chondros, and he noted quite a few that were in the leaf litter, you know, down on the ground. So I mean, this kind of behavior was, you know, kind of seen as very typical as opposed to there's something wrong with my snake. So, um, you know, I had the, you know, pleasure of, you know, talking to him quite a bit and I thought that was very insightful. And even, you know, Carl Switek, I mean, I had had the pleasure of talking to him. I mean, you talk about condor legend. I mean, he brought in the first gravid female that really started this whole thing. I mean, um, you know, he, he would tell you, um, in those, he wouldn't mince words. He would tell you in no uncertain terms that people are keeping these animals way too hot. You know, and, mm-hmm. and of course, a couple of years after that conversation, he came out with the book, you know, Green Python Country or something like that. And right. he documented on many occasions where in some of the highlands, I mean, raindrops were coming down in close to 40 degrees and these animals are sitting in the trees, you know, so... You know, he was convinced that, you know, some people were just keeping them too warm, which, you know, may or may not be the case. I mean, I don't know. I mean, heat stress has certainly been a topic that's been discussed among people, I know. But like I said, part of it's just kind of, you know, everybody kind of leans on people. I know, um, you know, I leaned on Trooper quite a bit when I actually did get to the breeding thing. Um, but setting up sort of the whole maternal incubation setup was more just intuitive. And, um, you know, he kind of gave me the benchmark for keeping, you know, um, ambient temperatures um, at or around 80 degrees or below because he's, you know, was explaining how the female is going to keep, you know, the clots warmer than that. So if you keep the cage at 84, those eggs are going to overheat. And especially as they progress, you know, through their incubation, they, start generating their own heat. So you even had to pull the temperatures back, you know, a bit in that. So, you know, I kind of had to lean on them a little bit for that, but, um, well, that's, uh, that's kind of counter, stuff that's, I didn't know. that's kind of counterintuitive. You know, when you think about it, you know, you, you, you would think as that clutch gets farther along, well, oh, you know, they need more warmth and more heat, but, uh, yeah, they're generating their own heat as we, as we know now know, thanks to a lot of the right. work that, uh, the trooper did, you know, that's an exothermic 
reaction going on in that, whether it's a egg uh, incubating chamber or the mother's sitting on it. You know, those things are generating heat. Yeah, I mean, and um, there were no <laughs> temperature guns back then. You know, you had to use straight up <laughs> thermometers. You know, and 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 of course he was using. Um, um, what do they call those things? The Atkins um, thermocouples, you know, was was one of the things that he was using. Um, but there yeah, were no, right. you know, temperature guns. And of course, the, you know, even the cage environment um, equipment was much simpler than, you know, there were no helix thermostats. Um, back then, we were using microclimates, right. and I still have some of them. Um, but I do have to say, you know, I've been interested in figuring this out, although I guess it hasn't really worked out that way. I love the setup I had back then, and I had the Neobisha cages with, you know, the red um, infrared spot lamps. And I, in my opinion, I believe they worked better for me than the heat panels do today. I mean, I, there's a lot of people certainly, you know, that have had tremendous success and probably nobody more than, you know, my nephew Christian, you know, with using the heat panels. But for me personally, I've always liked those, in, you know, the incandescent heat lamps. Um, well, we, but, we've heard that from uh, guests before. Ryan Young will echo those sentiments uh, till his very last day. He's a, a big proponent of those. Um, yeah, absolutely. Chuck, and Chuck Well, so I think they give a better. I think they yeah. give a better gradient, you know, because um, their their heat's a little more focused. You know, I think they give a better gradient in that respect. But I think the panels tend to heat up more of the enclosure. Um, but, you know, again, I mean, it may or may not be anything. It's I felt like my best successes were with, you know, the cages I kept with the um, uh, with the infrared lamps. But the opportunities or the breeding pairings that I had were definitely more on that end as well. I hadn't paired as many things with, you know, cages and heat panels, so I'm not sure that that's an accurate, you know, punch. Oh, right. I we just love on the show, we love to hear how uh, different people keep things successfully in different ways. To me, that's uh, that's some of the highlights of the show. You know, we could it, it would be so boring if everybody came on and said they thought the best success was with, with this exact same formula. And now I remember, you know, we, we had our female roundtable uh, last year, and we had three women on and three very experienced keepers, and they all kept the chondros markedly different, including Robin, um, who sprayed her chondros twice a day religiously, you know, as uh-huh. did Trooper, you know, following Trooper's uh, guidelines. And, you know, I just I, I love to hear that. I mean, not, you know, because it's kind of like the feeding mice over rats. It's kind of going out of vogue to, to spray directly spray your chondros, but Robin's still doing it twice a day, you know, and her chondros are doing great. Yeah, I mean, I I was definitely much more religious at, you know, spraying them down daily as well. I mean, I haven't been as much either, and I often thought of that as maybe a variable that's, you know, explained some of the, um, you know, inactivity I've had breeding-wise for the pairings I had done. So I don't know. I mean, I know even... You know, Trooper used to keep the um, rainbow boas in a big, probably like a four by eight um, ground-based container on these um, river rocks, 
and the, the the big enclosure was made out of cinder block, and he would literally fill up, you know, a couple inches of water in there and literally soak them for a day, you know, not for a yeah. day, but for several hours, and then drain the water out. He would do that every day. <laughs> he would just run a hose in there and put, you know, several inches of water in there and, you know, take it out and let them sit and then drain it out. So... Very cool. Yeah. Yep. You know, I do yep. think I do think you know, and I do think that you know, in the wild, it's probably more frequently that they're drinking off of their bodies than they're drinking out of a puddle or out of a river. And so I right. think, from the standpoint of hydration, there might be something to it. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense that they're going to, um, you know, that they're going to drink off their their bodies in that in, in the majority of the situation in the wild. You know, yeah, I agree. I mean, there's a lot of people, and I think Terry Phillip is one that you know has had a lot of success, and I don't think he uses water. Or some people, I thought I read somewhere, I've heard somewhere that he doesn't even give them a water bowl, I guess, but occasionally or something <laughs> like that. So, I'll tell you a true story. This is this is a true story. It was the very it was last year I produced my first clutch of chondros, and it was a local guy here, and he bought there was a, an Aruda and a root pairing, and he bought one. It was his first chondro, and I set up a little tub for him to keep it in. Um, it was a, a little Rubbermaid tub with perches in it and a, and a water bowl, and he got the chondro, and he got somewhere in his head that it didn't need fresh water, and so all he ever did was spray it down. Mm-hmm. He never, he didn't put any a water bowl in there, just sprayed it down every day. And he kept yeah. that thing for 18 months before I found out that that's what he was doing, and I said, no, you should probably put a water bowl in there. And the, and the thing did fine. It was 18 months. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've always kept water bowls and then, like I said, sprayed them down every day. So, I couldn't well, believe it was still a yeah. lot of different, you know, a lot of different mousetraps for these. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And you know, that's that's the difficult thing is you someone's who's interested in chondros and um, they want to kind of emulate, I guess, whatever the breeder's doing. And you know, that makes sense, but there's also you need to figure out what what is going to work best for. You know where your animals, you know where are they going to be? Where are they going to be in your house? Where where are you right. where are you living regionally? And you know there yeah. is some of that. You have to kind of, you know, take a deep breath and rely on some experience of your own personal experience and try to incorporate into those aspects into your condor keeping recipe. Um, yeah. So and I and I think that's you know. You know, for me, that's part of the, you know, the learning curve is, can be fun. Um, and, you know, being able to see, like, what does work and what, do, what doesn't work. I did a uh, couple years ago, I decided I was going to cycle a female. I just stopped feeding her, and I, I took all external heat off of, off of her for six weeks. And so she stayed between 72 and 75. And I didn't feed her, you know. I changed her water bowl, and I just let her go. And then I slowly brought the heat back up. 
and uh, I got a clutch out of her as soon as I uh, paired her. You know, I paired her with the male, and she went through the whole breeding process. And so, you know, I wouldn't tell everyone to go out and do this. And you know, quite a few people that I shared that with at the time were thought I was nuts and that it was going to be a death sentence for the animal. But I just wanted to, out of curiosity, I wanted to, you know, what what would happen if you if you did it this way, um, and and you know it worked for me. Um, I haven't repeated it, um, but it was interesting to experience it and and to to kind of learn what's going on and and see what your animals can you know what can they I guess take. Um, not that I would suggest people do extreme things to their animals for their own safety, but you know think outside the box a little bit. You might be surprised. Well, again, I mean, like I said before, I mean, Carl Switek would probably congratulate you on what you were doing, you know, because, like I said, he thought that a lot of them were being kept too warm. Right, and he, if if you have an opportunity to read that book, it's a very good book. It's a very good oh, read. Uh, you, can, you can breathe so pretty quickly. Um, but in there, he references the temperatures quite regularly, and they're they're not in the 90s. They're in the it's always seems to be in the 70s or barely 80s. Um, so definitely definitely an interesting good read if you can find a copy of it. Um, if you can't, Bill might loan you his, um, but mine is staying here. <laughs> yeah, I've got one too. I I, I waited. Out I of waited print. three years I waited three years to get mine, so it's staying here. Oh, uh, Tim, that reminds me, if you talk to Carl again, uh, let him know we'd like to have him on the show. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I only I only laughed because when I talked to him was probably about probably about 10 years ago, probably 10 or 11, and it was yeah. only by chance, and it was only because I was trying to track down some information for some research that I was doing at Towson, and um, yeah, so I don't know if that would ever happen again. Although well, maybe not true. I don't know. I mean, I could talk to Trooper and find out, you know, um, if he if he's contacted him recently. I mean, he definitely, he was hard to get a hold of, but he seemed to like to talk, you know, about the animals, but he was very strongly opinionated about things and certainly had his, you know, he was, he was no, we don't, pretty, we don't pretty clear that. on his thoughts on things. No, it's cool. Yeah, I don't mean, mind that. You know, I mean, as a guy, spent a lot of time in the bush, so. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, people Absolutely. Uh, love to hear. People love. People love to hear from. Uh, t- two things have been kind of uh, common p- popularities: history of of chondros, and people that have spent time uh, in indigenous areas areas of uh, New Guinea and Indonesia. Those are, right. you know, seem to be the really popular audience you know that's that's what that's what our listeners want to hear so yeah be great absolutely carl sweet Dak, if you're listening we would love to have you on the show <laughs> and i'm, and I'm sure in. In. there you go i'm sure he is oh uh, look someone just called in <laughs> just kidding uh, <laughs> there he is. uh so <laughs> tim i do have a question for you and it came from the mvf um and I know you've, you you and I were texting back and forth a little bit today. Uh, you have kind of caught up with things on the MVF, and there was a 
thread on there regarding uh, chondro lines, and it was started by John Irby, and it kind of says, you know, at what point is a line no longer a line? And the, so um, one of the users over there, big, he goes by Big V, but his name's Ryan, and he would like to know your opinion. Um, you know, when is a line no longer a line? Can you offer us an opinion on that? I don't know. First of all, you got to define the line. What is a line? <laughs> well, this is, I guess it's specifically, you know, how it started uh, was, I believe, blue, blue line was referenced. And yeah, then I, mean, I think well, you yeah, kind and, of. And, and you could insert, you can insert calico in there too, you know. Yeah. Right. Or well, a calico line. But I think if I was specifically a blue line, one is a blue line, no longer a blue line animal. Uh, and I think they're specifically referencing trooper wash blue line animals. Yeah. Uh, wow. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's a tough question, I guess, because really what it comes down to, I guess, in the way that term would be thrown out there would be for the purposes of advertising offspring, I would assume. But, um, you know, I mean, not all of troopers animals were quote blue line animals. You know, right? Um, you know, and and you know, I would say of what I knew, and I don't know everything, obviously, but you know, the line that I would have associated the blue line with would have been, and I know most people do this, are the ones with the Alzulich pairing in the background. Um, but from a more okay. pragmatic stance, the ones that I would probably say were more the TW blue line were were you know, was that litter with my female, with Joan Collins, with Powder, that line, and that breeding pair line, whatever it was, that litter that produced those animals seemed to have a hand in a lot of the blue animals that are out there. Um, okay. But, yeah, at what point do you lose the TW designation on that? I couldn't, I mean, you know, the thing of it is, to be honest with you, um, I mean, that TW blue line, even if you start it with my blue female, Joan Collins, or, you know, powder, you know, there, there's pretty substantial founder stock in just that one bloodline. So right. know, how far out would you have to outbreed that to something before you couldn't claim at least there was some percentage that goes back to it, you know? Um, right. And I, and I think that's so, the question. Is it is it when it's, 12.5% that it's you shouldn't say that there's trooper wash blue line is it you know less than 50% well, <laughs> try, try to convince all the people who try to sell like albino boas or albino you know anything you know what what point you know even the chondros at what point can't you claim a certain percentage you know what i mean right. you know, if you go back to some of the you know if you go back to some of the um just say, for example, some of the animals that, you know, my legend male produced, let's say he went on, you know, those animals went on to produce litters and those animals went on to produce litters. And let's say he did prove out to be an, uh, a head for albino. I mean, what would the percentages be at that point? I mean, yeah, it's minuscule. I'm, I'm sure right. if he had part of that lineage in there, he'd still claim that there was some possibility of having the gene, which in reality or in truth would be, right? So. Um, 
Right. I mean, I guess the point. I guess the point would be would be you know if an animal say had, you know, just arbitrarily saying, you know, fifteen percent TW blue line, I would say it would be a misrepresentation for that person to advertise it as a TW blue line animal. Right. So you could say it's an animal with blue line genes, including the TW blue line. You know what I mean? I guess it's going to be the way it's sure. raised, but I guess. As long yep. as it's always there, I would suppose that you could always claim that it has part of it in there. I mean, why wouldn't you? Right. You know, it exists yep. in that bloodline, so why couldn't you use it? It's the way it's framed, I think, would be the, you know, in my opinion, I guess the distinction of, you know, what, you know, no, the, the, how the most, you would the most accurate, yeah, exactly, accurate is the word. And the most accurate is going to involve the pedigree. And, you know, once you get past probably three or four generations, you know, then you're talking about, you know, less than 10% of a particular animal or line, it, it probably becomes close to inconsequential. But, it, you know, if it's 12.5% versus 50% or 75%, well, that, that's just accuracy in advertising. Well, right, and, you know, and I guess you could always look at it this way, too. You know, there's a Porsche bloodline in every Volkswagen, but you're not going to call it a Porsche. <laughs> right, <Good point>. exactly. <laughs> I, mean, yep. I mean, I guess that would that would make it pretty clear, right? I mean, I'd, right. It, you know, simplify it. But, uh, you know, and looking back, you know, just to draw back on this blue-blue breeding and the inbreeding potential, you know, um, I'm looking at the, you know, the lineage now and, you know, I'm counting one, two, three, four, five, six, uh, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen 12, 13 different founders would be part of that lineage right and wow. these would be animals i would assume would have been in the wild distant distantly related if not even from different regions and some of them i know were because there's a you know a wild biok in here listed so um right you know or no not a is there a wild biok that's a philly zoo biok no that's not in there no i'm sorry No, but I guess my first point would have been accurate then that, you know, that they would have been probably distantly related, you know, so. Right. And again, some of those pairings show up again and again, you know, but all told there's 13, you know, founders in there. And you're going back only, I guess if you go back to one of the offspring, you're going back one, two, three, four, maybe seven generations, I guess, and some of the longer ones. Right. So I'm not a geneticist in that respect able to sort of put any type of, you know, um, sound scientific spin on that, but I would assume that, you know, if, if they were like a dog or horse breedings and you had 13 pounders in a bloodline this big, I think that would be, you know. Oh, there is a wild biok in there. I'm sorry. There's a new there was, 302, 315. So, hmm. 
So anyways, you know, that was part of our reasoning behind, you know, doing it aside from just trying to get, you know, more blue animals or see if we would get more blue animals. Right. So. But I actually like my point about the VW and the Porsche. I think it's a good way of looking at the bloodline. Yeah, that is a, that's a great point. That is a <laughs> you great know, point. Um, but, I mean, um, but, I mean, in all seriousness, I think it's just the way it's advertised. You know, you wouldn't advertise an animal that, you know, 10% of it's related to that bloodline as you wouldn't use that as a headline for your ad. Yeah. Yep. Right. You would hope exactly. that. But I wouldn't say the bloodline's ever lost either. I mean, if it's in there, it's in there. Now, it's more diluted, right. obviously, the more you outcross it, but I wouldn't say that it's ever lost. So, like I said, so many of these things are based on, really, a lot of these arguments are based on, you know, what can or can't you advertise your animal as, you know what I mean? And right. so... Yeah, you know. yeah. A lot of that is based on is potential, you know. Right. Well, yeah, and it, it's like years ago. I remember there was a prominent member of our community, a Maryland one. I'm sure you know, buddy, who was so irritated at the uh, high end market that he vowed to buy a bunch of condos and sell them for twenty five dollars a piece. Buddy, you remember that? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, and this guy, I've never, you know, I won't name the guy, I've never met him, but I've heard good things about him, and, you know, and, and and he wasn't the first person to kind of bring this kind of thing to the forefront, you know, I mean, right. I remember reading a couple of threads, I don't know if it was NVF or maybe predated that, and goes all the way back to Condor Web, where people were like, you know, how do you get off charging this much money for an animal, et cetera, and it's like, yeah, I think I even responded to that thread by saying, hey, look, you know, <laughs> you can ask a million dollars for an animal. If somebody's willing to pay it, then you sell it for that. But um, you can always say no and look elsewhere, but you can't sit there and give somebody a hard time for what they believe the value is and something that's very unique. I mean, you know, all these high-end animals are one of a kind in a sense, you know. They, you right. know, they share some genetics, you know, but their phenotype or their look is, you know, very unique. So how do you even put a price tag? So, um, like I said, I've always been on the lower end of the pricing um, spectrum simply because I know how fragile the animals are and how, you know, an animal that's thriving in my care, as I said before, can a month later and somebody else's just die. So, yep. you know, it, I'd feel terrible if I charge them ten grand and I've already spent it and, you know, course off on something yeah. in the future but still it doesn't help a lot so i guess it's yeah. no, i think that's sort of that thing in the back of my mind yeah, yeah no that's a very that's a very good it's a very valid point absolutely right i mean I, especially uh, for these things you know you don't hear this so much going on with like ball pythons you know <laughs> i don't know because i don't keep them right bill <laughs> No, you're one of the haters. But me and Tim, uh, no, we got it. We got it. We got it covered. Hey, Tim, it's it's, a, it's Royal Python, <laughs> right? Royal Python, not boss. Right. Royal other, Python. Yeah. Well, the other thing that kills me too, I've seen some discussion in the past about people, you know, uh, knocking other people's bloodlines and/or pairings 
saying, you know, things to the effect that they're not going to, you know, be a very vigorous, you know, animal or not be a good breeder, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, you know, I don't, I, I, those, those kind of the posts sort of puzzle me in a little bit, you know, just because I always think back to Peter Call paying 25 grand for the first albino boa. And there was a breeder in California that had that thing for years and couldn't get it to breed. Right. And so they sold it to Pete for 25 grand. He turns around and breeds it. So. Well, bred it successfully. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, Pete was the first yeah. breeder of albino boas in the world. So. Mm-hmm. It was an animal that had come in, and it was in the hands of a very profi- uh, a very capable breeder who couldn't breed it, and then just decided to sell it. So. Yep, very interesting. You never know. Hey, one, well, it's just you never know. Thing Trooper said about the little mail he gave me. There you go. It won't amount to much, right? Known. I'm sure had he known what that thing was going to go on to do, he probably wouldn't have given it to me at the least. Right. I wanted to uh, just mention, I don't mention this very often, but I do have a website, believe it or not, and it's uh, gtpkeeper.com. And the reason I'm mentioning it is that uh, a couple summers ago, Tim contacted me and said, hey, I've got some informative papers, some scientific papers that Tim had Tim, I think you had just moved or preparing to move, and you found some articles, and you thought they would, they should be shared. And um, so Tim asked, you know, hey, if I get these two, can you get them up on your website? So Tim kindly took the time to get to scan these articles. Um, one nice. of them being actually uh, Carl Sweetak did a two-part article for Reptiles Magazine back in the mid to late '90s. Um, Tim was able to get that. He, some stuff that Trooper had written, um, some papers that Trooper had written and submitted that probably can't be found very easily. Um, so, you know, Tim got the information to me. I put them up on the website. So I just want to let people know if you're, you know, this is a, a new venture for you and you're hearing names like Trooper Wash and Tim Morris, um, Carl Sweetak. You can go to my, it's a page on there I have for informative and scientific papers. And uh, there's a lot of great information, albeit old, but I think it's still very good and pertinent that Tim provided to me to put up on the website. So I just wanted to let people know that, you know, you know, if you see something on there and you think it's really great, you know, thank Tim because he was he was a part of that. Very nice, very nice. All right, so I think we're getting ready to start wrapping it up. So, Tim, one one final question for you, my friend. Um, okay. So what does the future hold for Tim Morris as a reptile enthusiast? Well, good question. Um, yeah, I still look forward to, you know, breeding some things I haven't bred before, and the annulators are at the top of my list. Um, I have a pair of those that I raised from babies, and thought for sure I have some Babies coming to me last summer, and then things didn't pan out that way. And then I've got a pair of Angolan pythons. I've always had a heart for them, and so I'm trying to breed them too. So I guess for me, it's just breeding some things I haven't bred before. There's a 
you know, like I said, this nice male bioc that I'm hoping to find a breeding thing with. But, um, you know, I, I was talking to Sean, you know, Stuart, uh, Christian's brother, uh, just a couple of weeks ago about, you know, the whole condor thing and, you know, just how it's always been so hard to kind of replicate the thrill of owning one for the first time and breeding right. them for the first time. And now it's, I guess, become so common for a lot of these things. And maybe it's just because I live in a region where there's so many people working with them that are doing well, like you, buddy, and Christian, and um, that I can go to a place like the barn and see some of the best animals in the world. And, you know, then, you know, it's like I look at them and I can appreciate them, but it's not like, wow, I need that animal. Um you know, um, so it's it's interesting in that way. You know, I I still like them a lot. Um, I still think that I would like to. Uh, one thing I think I would like to do condor related would be to um, do another maternal incubation. Um, to me, that was a huge thrill. Um, so I think I would definitely, as far as condors is concerned, do something like that. Um, but I can tell you, buddy, I'm sure you can certainly attest to this, that, uh, you know, owning condros and being good at it um, is kind of a double-edged sword, uh, <laughs> not to ever use that cliche, but um, I kind of got to a point where I got a little bit burned out um, right. on the feeding aspect of the babies, you know. it's Yes. It, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it, yes. it's pretty intense, you know, and it's almost like I... I've said before, it's like being an accountant during tax season, you know, you just dread it. <laughs> you know, it's like you want you want the babies, you want to hatch them out, but you know what's coming to you. And, yes. you know, I, and I have to admit there were many occasions where I dreaded going into the reptile room because I knew what I would have to deal with. And, you know, that makes it, uh, that makes it a challenge. But, right, you know, I hear you. But it is, you know, it is rewarding. <laughs> yep. You know, I remember, um, you know, my very first litter, you know, the Mr. Blue litter, where I was having difficulty with several of the babies. I mean, I hatched out 17, so, uh, you know, I had issues with, with a lot getting them going. And, you know, Trooper gave me a whole laundry list of different scenting techniques that he used and, uh, the only thing that worked for me was the chick feather scent um, of all of them. And that night, you know, I had, I don't know, let's say there were eight that weren't feeding. I think I maybe got five of the eight to feed right away on that, and it was euphoria. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know? Yep, yep, I know. There's no there's no, <laughs> there's no greater feeling, you know, of, you know, struggling with a condor to get the feed, and it takes its first meal, and you sit there feel like a statue, you know, because you're afraid it's going to drop it if it sees you move. So, right. um, there's, yep. a, there's, there's, there's a lot to it. And, you know, and I kind of became sort of known for being able to feed stubborn ones. So a lot of people would send me some of their trouble feeders. And of course, when I lived at the barn or lived at Sean's for a couple of years, you know, I, we had some humongous years of one year, I think we produced between he and I over a hundred babies and um, yeah, there were several stubborn feeders there, but I, I don't think I ever lost one. And then I know, buddy, several years ago, 
Christian had called because he was overwhelmed, and you and I went right. over there, and I didn't even have to get involved. I mean, you 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 got them all going. I mean, so you obviously have you know mastered the difficult feeding tricks very well, and that's one of the difficult things. I mean, you know, the technique has a lot to do with how these things will feed, and I remember picking Trooper's brain quite a bit. Um, and he basically told them or told me, you know, look, if they're not eating, you just got to really piss them off, you know, pinch their right. tails, you know, their reflex feeders. Don't be afraid to, you know, pinch their tails or mid body's hard, get them striking, you know, make them react. And so that, that was very helpful advice. And so as I, you know, showed Christian and maybe even you, buddy, one of my standard techniques, I guess, was to lay out several different, you know, like four or five boxes and just work right on down the row and come back instead right. of focusing on one at a time. Yeah. Um, because yep. a lot of yep. times they, they, you know, a lot of times they get into this mode where they just, they, they just start cruising and running. I just put the lid on that one and come back to it, you know, cause once they start doing that, there's very little hope in my experience of getting them to take something. So, yeah. 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 It's uh, so much, uh, so much has been learned, um, you know, Tim, from people like you and, and the generations that have followed in, in you. I mean, so much has been learned and passed down uh, to newer keepers that, and I'm not saying by any means that it has become easy, but uh, just some of the knowledge that took you probably litter after litter and year after breeding year to learn, you know, uh Boy, to have that information at, at our disposal now, it just it, it literally uh, it takes years off the learning curve, and um, you know, it's just uh, it's we're just fortunate to have it. Yeah, and I I think I referenced this before. I mean, I think that in some ways um, the information explosion has hurt the perspective of many people again you know, into these animals, you know, whereas, you know, I was fortunate enough, I guess, and the funny part of it was, I guess it was all just sort of a coincidental meeting of a variety of things, but, you know, Chirper had been into it since, you know, the mid-70s, so it was nearly, you know, 20 years before I produced my first, you know, condo, and if you look at how much has, has changed between 1996 and now, it's huge. Um, Absolutely. So, you know, um, I think I was, and Buddy, you too, were in a very fortunate situation that no one will ever kind of experience again in that we kind of experienced the evolution of this. You know what I mean? Right. The sort of the main, the mainstream explosion of these animals. You know, we, we were on the ground, we were on the ground floor of that. And like I said, I think in some way, everything just automatically being out there, all the potential you see, you just go on the forum and you see the dramatic potential of all of these animals and what you could potentially produce. I think in some cases, you know, kind of jades people a little bit more so than, than when I got into it, you know what I mean? So it's, it's really right. difficult for me to understand the perspective of somebody getting into it now because there's, everything's out there, just like you said, Bill. So um, I don't know if it's better or worse, but I kind of feel like 
it was a very unique time looking back on it now and reflecting on it of just seeing it evolve. I mean, we were part of that wave and, you know, that wave is at its crest and sort of standing there indefinitely at this point. Yeah. I think it is. I think it still is at its crest. I don't think it's, yeah. it's necessarily peaked yet. I think there's still, um, you know, obviously we're getting, there's new people getting involved and, um, you know, there, there certainly isn't a glut of captive bred chondros on the market, you know, yeah. uh, at this time. So I don't think uh, they're being overproduced. I don't think, you know, I mean, I think we're still riding the wave that you guys saw begin 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, well, right. if anything, I mean, you know, the people today, I mean, like Christian and some of the other people that have been breeding these guys by the bunches, I mean, have just been pushing it rapidly forward, you know. Um, yep. You know, so the only, you know, the only thing I can think of, to be honest, is um, in terms of, you know, uh, realms of the chondro that haven't yet been fully realized is the albino project. It's amazing to me that there's albino everything. There were albino mm. chondros, and now you never even hear about it. You know, and the right. people that had them, you know, they're, they're just diminishing. I mean, and the people who have even been lucky enough, like, you know, Marshall and Damon um, that have had babies, I mean, I've not seen anything, not that I've been looking, but the people that I know, like James Optal, who are, you know, involved with it, and you, Buddy, and other people don't seem to know much of what's going on with the Albino Project, if there's even much out there, you know. So that's sort of been a disappointment that we weren't able to sort of realize how that albino gene would have mixed in with the blue line or with these other lines, the calico lines and other things like that, you know, so. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, very interesting to see if, you know, I'm not involved personally, so I hear a lot of things. And of course, you know, that's just hearsay, um, you know, but I would, I would like to see that re rejuvenated and, or even just know what what exactly is kind of going on. There was there was uh, some animals that were posted, and I think that they were in the Czech supposedly in the Czech Republic, um, and they looked like the real deal. They looked like albino chondros, uh, yeah. And and but I think that it turned out to be, you know, fraudulent. And um, so, you know, it's one of those, uh, yeah. And that that of course blows my mind as well but um yeah you know what is exactly going on with the, the albino project you know we had marshall on a couple of times just to give us an update with his project and he's you know he's still working on it um but you know you know well, who knows what the future will hold for it and uh just going yeah. back to the baby chondro thing you know until you've established a baby chondro from a hatchling <laughs> It, it gives you a new perspective when you when you see an animal for sale. At least it does for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, definitely an appreciation. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah exactly. It's because it's you know you get lucky sometimes, and you have animals that you know they just go with the flow. The first time you feed them, they're they're rocking and rolling, and you know it makes you feel really good as a keeper. Like, yeah, I'm really good at this. And you get these other animals that 
like you had mentioned, Tim, they will try your patience and you will go through every trick in the book that you know, and you may have to lean on somebody else. And it's, I tell you, that that is a really bad feeling to have babies that you can't get going. And Tim, I know one of the sayings that used to proliferate when we were much younger was, you know, don't breed them if you can't feed them. Um, and that yeah. always sticks in my mind, um, you know, when I get these babies that give me that are giving me difficulty. You know, it's it's a it's a very difficult challenge at times to to overcome. Yeah. And I think that came from, that was an expression from Eugene. Is that who it came from? I can't remember. Yeah. Sounds yeah, like can't, something you can't feed them, don't breed them. <laughs> it, it does sound like a Eugene uh, expression. <laughs> it does. Yeah, he, he, he's had a lot of good quotes. <laughs> I've kind of gotten this, like, midlife crisis snake thing going on. And um, so, you know, I've, I've worked with some animals, and they've been, you know, a lot of fun, but I've suddenly take like, hey, there's these, I've noticed these, there's these group of animals that I want to work with. Before I, before I have to sell the farm and uh, move to a retirement community. Um, and so for me, that's, you know, it's all of a sudden I'm like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'd like to try doing some diamond pythons, maybe some black-headed pythons. And I'd like to revisit Antaresia, maybe do the, uh, trash and pygmy pythons you and i are are very close to the same age have you had any similar feelings with any particular species that you're like the time is of the essence i need to if i'm going to do this i got to do it soon well i don't know if i'm pressed time wise but you know last year um i was starting to get into reading um the antaresia book the complete um children's python Right. And the Stimson I have always kind of piqued my interest. I've had, you know, Maculosa before, the spotted pythons, but the Stimsons, you know, and I know Justin Julander is working with them and actually contacted them about some and wanted some, and then something came up and I didn't have any money to play with, so I didn't go for it. But that's, I could see me getting into those at some point soon. Very good. Very good. But, yeah. And a neat, a neat group of snakes have, still have. You know, gotcha. What about you, Bill? You know, I'm still in my uh, I'm still in my chondro infancy. Okay. So, you okay. know, I'm still. That's what I'm really, uh, you know, focused on. That's a new project for me. For you guys, it's the old stuff. For. Huh. For me, it's still uh, the the bright new shiny toy. So, um, okay, that's where I'm staying. Gotcha. So you, so you gotcha. just have uh, green trees, though. I uh, know I've got uh, carpets and balls. Oh, okay. And rhinos too, right, Bill? Uh, yeah, I've got a pair of rhinos too, and I've got uh, oh, one point two rough scales. Hey, really? That was another species I, you know, was interested in. Did they come yeah, in through from, Terry's phenomenal. group? Or? Uh, I actually got them from Dave D, who produced them, and I, I can't remember if they were from Terry's. I think, I think so. I think 
Yeah. They originally came I know he had gotten through. them in. I couldn't remember if it came into Terry or a different uh, Bushmaster source uh, from uh, where Dave got them. I can't remember. But they are they are fantastic animals. They are really cool. Yeah, they are. Cool. They're pretty unique. Yeah, they should be. Uh, my trio should be up to up to size maybe next year or the year after. They're so uh, they're just really really fun. They're uh, they're very carpet like in their uh, behavior, demeanor. They're they're very low keyed. Uh, my understanding is they have massive teeth, but I've never I've never looked at them. Supposedly <laughs> very <laughs> large <good>. teeth. <laughs> I've never got a personal up close view of them. Um, but they're uh, they're really really fun. That's good. Well, good luck with those. I mean, they're no thanks. That was something recent. I mean, recent to get into for them. I mean, they're not that common. In yeah, the wild I think they will be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, especially in the wild. Uh, I think they'll be more common. Uh, my understanding is 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 they're relatively hardy in captivity and and uh, not real real hard to to breed. So I think um, you know I think here in the next few years they'll become more common. They're they're great. They're pretty relatively small. Stay relatively small, and uh, you know they're semi arboreal. You don't need to keep them in arboreal setup. So. Um, they're, they're just, uh, I think, I think they're going to, they're going to be popular. Good. Look forward to more of those hitting, you know, hitting the market. Yeah, absolutely. Well, now we know Bill will have them, Tim. That's it. Maybe. Pressure's on. <laughs> <laughs> Buddy's just uh, hoping that I don't cross it with a green tree. <laughs> right. I know you will. <laughs> no, I, no, I won't. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, All right, right Okay, Tim. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate you taking your time out. I know uh, you, you're back at it tomorrow, doing your 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 teacher job, and uh, so we all, I know, I know we you all get are rest. Afraid. Not me. Get back to oh, the not you. Yeah. Tim, All right, Tim, Tim thanks I, so much. I can't thank hey, you enough, pleasure, Tim. guys. Appreciate, appreciate it. it. We'll, uh, if you need some help we'll, getting Johnny Blue on here, just let me know. Yes, we will reach out and see if uh, yes. he may be willing to come on with you. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, but he, he would be a good candidate if he decided to do the RICO. You know, yeah. So that's a good idea. Yep. Maybe uh, maybe cool. have John and uh, and and Tim and Trooper on. Yeah, Greg would that be was... a good one to have on that show as well. Greg yeah. Okay. Yep. okay. Absolutely. I know he was involved quite a bit, especially near the end, helping them with the animals and everything like that. Yeah. All right. All right. Fantastic, guys. Have a good week. Yeah, you guys have a good All night. Right. Thanks, Tim. Thank, thank you, Tim. Bill, that was a pretty good show. Yeah, I thought it was a great show. He's—I uh, yeah. knew he'd be a good guest. I've—I've I've heard him talk and converse with him. Um, I knew he would bring a lot of knowledge, a lot of history uh, to the, uh, to the people, the listeners that were interested. So it was—it uh, was great to have him on. Absolutely, absolutely. Longtime friend of mine and one of 
one of my go-to people whenever I'm stumped with something or I'm thinking about doing something, uh, I I talk with Tim about it, and we he walks so me through the process. You're, so you're my mentor, and he was your mentor, <laughs> so that kind of, yes. by definition makes him my grand mentor. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and he all was right. very kind, and he did not tell the story of how I was all about owning chondros until I watched him establish babies and was like, I don't <laughs> think these things are for me. I don't think I can do it. I mean, I just kind of like lost it. And, you know, yeah, I was yeah, going to – I mean, that, I was, you've told that story. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't have to tell True. that. You, like, you tell on yourself. Yeah, I do. Very good. All right, Bill. So um, stay tuned, right, everyone. Friend. We have some we have uh, we have some pretty good guests lined up for future shows, and uh, we should uh, be having a show within the next uh, five to six weeks. All right, Bill. Absolutely. All right. All right. Have have a good night. Have a good night, my have friend. Good night, listeners. Bye bye. Thanks for listening. Bye. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.